0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit
1: scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared it's not landing jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred by motive. And night fell in a different world and iblis is thinking you know i should be getting this position not adam and this guy is created from dirt and how does the army feel about
2: you being head of the temple of Seth? and the conspiracy theorists can say what they will but- i want you to give me power over adam and i want you to
1: give me soldiers and minions and all of these things Able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind and uh, who
2: was the grotto leader don't remember his name you don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder very welcome back to subliminal jihad episode 114 i'm your co-host dimitri
3: i'm khaled
2: and today, we're picking up right back where we left off with our boy, Gustavus Myers. Uh, this uh, this final installment to the history of the Great American Fortunes Trilogy, as we probably should have anticipated, uh, is running a little long, mm-hmm. but it's there's so much good stuff that I feel like, you know, we just yeah. can't we can't skip over things, you know, and this we is our rush. Yeah, this is our Myers swan song. So mm-hmm. we got to do it right. So today, yeah.
3: I mean, so we say, but I mean, so we knows? say, yeah. you
2: know, who knows? Um, but I think today we're going to finish up History of the Great American Fortunes volume three, mostly talking about the magnificent uh, emperor of American finance, J. Pierpont Morgan and a couple other shady uh, oligarchs uh, and then move on to the ending of the hereditary American fortunes, uh, Gustavus Meyer's final work from 1939. And kind of blend the two together and talk about it. So I guess, you know, without further ado, let's go. Right? Yeah. I think where we left off previously on hot gaff three, JP yeah. Morgan had, uh, through fraud, deceit, organized murder, bribery, um, and all other, yeah, yeah. usury, had uh, manipulated himself to kind of the, the top of the, the money pyramid in American life. And uh, I think where we last left off, he had begun the process of what people called uh, remorganization right. of various industrial and banking enterprises into vast trusts um, that, uh, basically at the end of the day, he or his minions controlled. And I think I forget the exact number, but around the time where we're picking back up with Morgan around 1902, I, I think he controlled possibly as much as 60% of the stock of America's entire corporate economy, right? Something along the lines of that.
3: I'm not sure where the figure is, but that sounds like it could be true. Um, I think
2: it may have even been higher at, later in the decade, but this is really, uh, as Gustavus Meyer says here in chapter 11, this is Morgan at his zenith. Yes. So let's, uh, I guess, you know, we can jump back in. I'll read a little bit from the beginning of this chapter here, just to place us uh, back in the narrative. So... By the end of the year 1902, J. Pierpont Morgan, reckoning by appearances, seemed to outrank every other American magnate. Scarcely a day passed that the newspapers did not report some new achievement of his or obsequiously render tribute to his ever-expanding power. In the public appraisement, he balked as a super-vitally preponderant man, a figure standing out with an immense and peculiar distinction, eclipsing the most obtrusive political and industrial functionaries. Contrasted with him, ostensible political rulers were innocuous ephemeral personages. For a time, they might vociferously command attention, but their incumbency was dependent upon the will of the magnates, and they were pushed up or pulled down as suited the policy and purposes of the great property interests. A long array of, quote, eminent statesmen, had shuffled into solemn view, and for a while had been the scenicure of the nation, and then, like exploded rockets, had disappeared into obscurity, or into a state akin to it. Yet, in another aspect, brief and borrowed as was their power, theirs was not the portion of oblivion. Conventional history, which accepts the apparent as the real, documents and often perpetuates their names ignorant of the fact that they were only the servers or servitors of particular impelling forces and interests behind the nominal political masters stood the real masters the great magnates I so, love
3: this sec yeah. <laughs> the subsequent section on historical omissions and misjudgments uh, Oh yeah, yeah yeah why don't you read that <laughs> All right yeah sure uh seeing that this is so what vitally boots it, whether this or that individual happened to fill the so great elec- so-called great so great elective or appointive offices? In stereotyped historical textbooks and narratives, the names of J. Pierpont Morgan and his like do not enter. Not even a cursory glimpse is given of their deeds. Yet in large part, these are the significant things that fundamentally have made actual history. Rulers have been allowed to make formal declaration of wars, but capitalists have commanded them. When it pleases the interests of capital to have peace... Titular rulers are ordered to arrange it. Should rulers be so obtuse or stubborn as to stand in the way of capitalist interests, revolution follows. In a a parliamentary country, laws are somehow enacted contrary to the interests of the dominant capitalist class. Those laws are effectively voided. All of which proves that, although presidents, kings, and emperors may mightily pose as quote-unquote creators of policies... Yet, after all, they are only the sounding board creatures of money forces unnoticed by orthodox histories. And then he starts going in on, on Roosevelt. Oh, uh, yeah. Th- right, hey, Roosevelt, Teddy. that is. An overbearingly potent and heroic, quote-unquote, great man, Roosevelt appeared. Many a descriptive work has been written of him, and doubtless in the curious nature of things, we are likewise fated to see many a statue of him. He's right about that. For what? If history tells the tale aright, it will tell how he begged campaign funds from the very trust magnates whom he pretended to flout, how, in a critical moment in the national election of 1904, he so despaired of success that he was forced to appeal to Morgan, Harriman, and their fellow magnates for a fresh and immediate fusion of funds. The world does not revere a loser, unless he be a great one, and for a great cause. In considerable degree, Roosevelt fought the fight of a rapidly decaying cause, that of the middle class— a cause doomed to fail uh, ignobly, and rightly so. (laughs) On the (laughs) surface, he seemed to the quote-unquote big man of the day. In point of fact, he was vanquished by such magnets as Morgan, Harriman, and Rockefeller. They, to all appearances, mere private individuals, defeated every move of him who was supposed to be invested with even greater powers than many potentiates. Wow. Mm
2: -hmm. He does say here... Like, because I mean, this this might be shocking to some listeners because most people remember Teddy Roosevelt as the great trust buster, right? Yeah, he. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he, uh-huh.
3: according to Myers, he like was actually humiliated by them, and the trust busting movement didn't get very far.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. He, he says the irresistible progress of the trust movement and the all comprehending power of the magnates can be better estimated when it is recalled that it was during Roosevelt's administration that the most antagonistic campaign thus far essayed against the trust was carried on. At least it seemed so if invective and in suits at law counted. But at basis, Roosevelt, despite his pretenses, was an instrument of the trust magnates, which fact was connoted anew by the circumstance that he was the president who signed the act, striking out the imprisonment clause from the anti-rebating act, assuring magnates and corporations full immunity from criminal prosecution. It was proved Mm. again during the great coal strike of 1902, when Roosevelt was forced to beseech J. Pierpont Morgan to consent to some kind of arbitration settlement, True, indeed, Roosevelt, or those inspired by him, could darkly intimate that it were well for the coal magnates to come to terms, otherwise they might suffer criminal prosecution for violation of the act forbidding railroads from owning coal mines, but the magnates, well realizing how often they had heard this claptrap sort of talk, and how empty and futile it all was, could pass it over with amused contempt. Then came the sight of the President of the United States theoretically representing 85 million people, being compelled to parlay and treat with a few magnates on their own terms. The one man who controlled the operators, wrote A. Morris Lowe, who unquestionably was one of the best-informed newspaper correspondents in Washington, was Mr. J. Pierpont Morgan. Everything else having failed, his services had to be enlisted. Morgan instantly showed that he had the power of doing what the president of the United States acknowledged that the highest executive in the country in his own person could not do— a fact moving low to exclaim reverentially, as quoted heretofore quote, Great is Mr. Morgan's power, greater in some respects even than that of presidents or kings. Roosevelt could publicly boast of his having settled that strike, yet, in point of actual fact, Morgan shrewdly used Roosevelt to bring about a settlement at the time when the magnates decided it was politic, and with the result the most favorable that they could hope for in the particular alarming exigency. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, that was something that uh, he brings up a few times that I think in 1903, Congress passed a law that said that if you were the officer of like a trust corporation and you got caught violating the antitrust laws, you couldn't be criminally prosecuted or go to Mm -hmm. jail. And I guess Roosevelt, despite being this big talker, uh, you know, signed that into law. He didn't veto it. So... Kind of lame, kind of weak. Myers also says here... Uh, the we
3: footnote get a, is interesting. I don't know if you... Did you read footnote 2? <laughs> you know, he kind of indicts him for undercutting Moyer, Hayward, and Pettibone, officers of the Western Federation of Miners." Yeah,
2: Roosevelt took special occasion in 1907 to prejudice public opinion against Moyer, Hayward, and Pettibone officers of the Western Federation of Miners, where they were in prison awaiting trial. They were later acquitted of the trumped up charge of murder brought by powerful capitalist interests in order to discredit and break up the progressive labor organization of which they were the heads. Certainly, Roosevelt was extremely courageous in attacking the weak and those from whom he could expect no support or funds. A more overestimated man, nor one who more successfully befooled the people by sheer talk, has not lived in recent times.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Damn, uh, that sounds
2: sounds a lot like Trump, kind of like yeah a little bit talker but then he just ends up like shitting on it's like i mean in
3: a way it almost seems like morgan like uh i mean trump kind of is like the uh he represents sort of the like taking out the middle man of like morgan just straight up being roosevelt except like trump wasn't ever as rich as morgan not yeah but morgan did have like as he kind of notes later like a different approach than the rockefellers uh who were You know, even richer than he was. But Morgan was different because he was like, you know, more, even though he hated newspapers that Uh like constantly adulated him he you know was more of like a public-facing guy who kind of like reveled in uh what does he say the ostentation of publicity (laughs) Uh, yes exactly
2: exactly yeah myers writes that morgan's lofty surmounting status at this time did not arise from any misconception that he was the richest man in the u.s that prepotency john d rockefeller could easily claim and hold But Morgan was so unceasingly before the public in some activity or other, and was so preeminently conspicuous in the organization of railroad combinations and industrial trusts, that considering all aspects, he was looked upon as perhaps the most important of the magnates." Uh, He says, this was a popular deception and was caused by the difference in tactics between Morgan and the Standard Oil oligarchy. The Rockefellers and their associates systematically discouraged publicity as to their business transactions. In all of their operations, they cultivated the profoundest secrecy and took exceeding pains not to acquaint the people with the real extent of their possessions, nor with the methods by which they were gradually drawing into their ownership the resources of not only one nation, but of many nations working through auxiliaries or intermediaries. They were converting much of the U S with its assets, including human labor into their private property. But so surreptitiously was this done that they allowed no mention of their conquest to be either formally or informally given out. The standard oil headquarters was an inaccessible citadel of silence. But yes, on the other hand, Morgan seemed to glory in the ostentation of publicity. So yeah, I guess, uh, he does say in the in his threefold capacity of banker, railroad magnet and industrial trust organizer, Morgan needed a certain amount of inspired publicity for the specific purposes of his undertakings. As a banker, he had to advertise his financing of projects in order to dispose of the stock. The more power he was credited with and the more extraordinary a financier he was extolled, the easier it was to induce a multitude of investors to put up their money in enterprises sponsored by him. So, you know, it's like, uh, guys, like Elon Musk, he can multi task like trust yeah like he's a genius like he's (laughs) basically a superhero give him your money he's iron man he's tony stark i mean there isn't that true though like there are certain billionaires that play a kind of quiet game You know, when they are Mm -hmm. silent, they are stealing. And then they are like the flashy (laughs) ones or even ones that embrace being like a scary goblin, like Morgan kind of did. Like he kind of leaned into being this all-powerful like magnate that nobody could fuck with and all that stuff. Um, Whereas, I mean, Rockefeller's children and grandchildren would take some kind of different tacts when they got into like the philanthropy game. But it is true that they were very, they were quietly accumulating shit all through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and like the turn of the century and didn't get like nearly as much press as other people, like maybe a Jay Gould or a Mark. Right. But uh, but anyways, he also mentions here again, like what we talked about earlier about the rationalization and centralization of business. And Morgan was Mm -hmm. like creating this this evolutionary movement. Yeah, he ruled 55,000 miles of railroad. (laughs) There was no exact estimate of like how many things he actually owned Uh, a guy named moody wrote uh, i think in 1902 mr morgan's uh, railroad transactions large as they were became somewhat obscured by his still greater trust forming operations mr morgan moody further wrote is essentially the inspirer creator and dominator of current american industrial forces A sonorous sentence, but quite exaggerated. Long before that time, John D. Rockefeller had demonstrated the principle of the centralization of industry. Morgan neither exclusively inspired, created, nor dominated. He was but one of the leading practicalists in transforming industrial conditions from the competitive to the trust form. He is unquestionably, went on Moody, the boldest, the ablest, and the most far-seeing of any of the modern generals of finance who stand at the head of the modern movement for the consolidation idea in the production and distribution of wealth. This is easily proven by the fact that the enterprises in which his influence is paramount today are the strongest and most ably planned of any of the great combinations or trusts. (laughs) Myers says, uh... Such eulogies as this have a mechanical ring. They have been manufactured almost automatically. That they passed (laughs) unchallenged is sufficient comment upon the standards of the day, exemplified by the press as an institution for influencing the people. Even the dullest critic will observe how lacking in reservations and elucidations they are. No explanation is vouchsafed of the quality of Morgan's, quote, "...greatness," nor any reason given why he should be brevetted a, quote, "...general of finance." The assumption evidently has been fixed that these high-sounding, all-inclusive, prejudicative uh, prejudicative assertions would be swallowed as truth-ordained, and remarkable as it does seem, this has been the brand of truck ladled out for consumption by the American people. Fortunately, there prevails in some quarters a rebellious spirit of free inquiry, which same spirit presses us to know more of what a magnate had to do in order to be ranked as a, quote, general of finance. So, uh, he talks about... Like what was this huge trust that Moody was, you know, uh, so airily referring to? It was the Great U.S. Steel Trust. So that was, a, you know, a big thing. Um, he so he goes on to describe the creation yeah. of U.S. Steel, which is like kind of a big moment for. Uh, this is also kind of has like Elon Musk Twitter vibes, and that it was like very surprising um, mm-hmm. that he ended up pulling this off. So right,
3: yeah. It was that's something to do with Carnegie too, right? He like it, kind Carnegie, of snatched yeah. it out from Carnegie, yeah.
2: I mean he he straight up bought it from him. I yeah. I, think, I forget if we mentioned it at all. But yeah, he talks about how this it was no paltry affair of a few hundred million dollars. It was uh It was over a billion, which he says, you know, the mind reels basically to conceive of that much money (laughs) Um, (laughs) back then. He says, as a downy young man, Morgan was probably content with his profits of thousands and financing the selling of that batch of condemned rifles to the army but then he was only a mere ambitious fledgling yet now namely in the year 1901 when he organized the steel trust he had become a full-fledged general and as all men know no general of finance in these days is worthy of the name unless he splashes in projects of the major hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in this steel trust or united states steel corporation as it chose to call itself a very large number of important plants were gradually merged Plants in many parts of the U.S., iron plants and steel mills and factories of tin products, every kind and quality of wares made from iron and steel were embraced in the production of the plants gathered in under this gigantic corporation. It was pleased to style itself, not an owning corporation, so much as a, quote, holding company. All of the existing plants in the U.S. it did not succeed in taking within its fold, but of those remaining outside, many were large mills allied with it, doubtless to give a judicious appearance of competition." Others were of a, quote, independent order, mills antagonistic to the trust and actively bent upon competing with it. For reason to be stated later, the steel trust had no fear of most of these. There was another black prospect for the middle class. Verily, the once infallible doctrine <laughs> that, quote, competition is the life of trade was sick unto death and college professors were utterly at a loss to know how to inter the corpse decently when decease finally came. Perhaps curiosity may be expressed regarding the prior history of these individual steel and iron and tin plants, how they became huge, and their owners multimillionaires before the steel trust were organized. Were their owners honest men who thriftedly saved their pennies, amassed capital, toiled hard, invented their own devices, and were respectable men and legitimate traders? Not quite. <laughs> They were accounted respectable enough, but their methods were not a scintilla different from those of the capitalists in all other fields, which is to say that their respectability was as well founded as that of any other capitalist group. So, yeah, he's not going to basically he talks about how even these little producers thrived on inventions, many of which they got by chicanery or theft, how they again and again bribed Congress for a high protective tariff, how they corrupted elections and ruled cities and partially state and national governments, how they defrauded the government before, during and after the Civil War, how the armor mill owners charged their own government extortionate prices for warship armor plate, which on at least one specific occasion was found to be worthlessly defective and oppressed their masses of workers. And when those workers struck for better conditions, caused them to be shot down as happened in the carnegie works at homestead pennsylvania in 1892 anyways moving on uh so <laughs> they're, they're all sickos um he says that this is under the section Car- rockefeller and carnegie fall out not with a rhythmic placidity did the steel trust come into being an embittered contest tinged with much personal animus among certain of the great magnates proceeded and in some degree precipitated its formation. So Rockefeller controlled a lot of the iron ore deposits in the Masaba region in the Northwest, and they wanted to buy the Carnegie plants for the purpose of organizing a trust. But to compel Carnegie to yield, he had to, uh, Rockefeller had recourse to the methods he had so often and successfully used in the oil fields, but he found Carnegie, a hornet of an individual, it did Rockefeller no good to mass his interest in the ore fields, in Lake Superior transportation, and in railroads against Carnegie interests. Every move was checkmated well, ca- by is Carnegie. Is Carnegie
3: the correct pronunciation of his name? A lot of
2: people pronounce it that way, like in the documentaries that I watch where they're all Interesting.
3: I've always yeah. said Carnegie. But I've always said know.
2: Carnegie too, like Carnegie Hall. Yeah, but Carnegie like Hall. other people's like Carnegi, oh, Carnegie, you know, like, uh, we could say yeah, whatever I guess that makes it doesn't sense. Yeah, I'm seeing
3: Wikipedia right now, Carnegie, Carnegie, Carnegie Hall, uh, not Scottish right, yeah, whatever. name. whatever. I don't know. Eh, all right, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, uh, yeah, every move was checkmated by Carnegie. Rockefeller was finally compelled to lower his rates on iron ore. Finding that he could not crush out Carnegie as he had crushed small oil producers, Rockefeller changed his tactics. He advanced Henry C. Frick a million dollars as payment to Carnegie for an option to buy, buy the Carnegie plants for a hundred million. Frick had been a partner of Carnegie, but between the two, differences had arisen, developing into a festering antagonism. If Rockefeller assumed that his plan would go through without obstacles, he found himself enlightened enlightened before long the first hindrance was the unfavorable times. Assuredly, the great monarch of wealth did not intend to pay that a hundred million out of his own personal resources. Again, sound familiar? Yeah. Such a plan, according to approved methods of finance would be asinine. The gudgeons were to pay for it. The people who could be depended upon to buy stock issues, which stock could be manipulated so that the losses of those investors would be equal and much more to the capital required. But at that juncture, it was reckoned that the anticipated victims were in no mood or shape to exchange cash for engraved paper. A propitious occasion had to be awaited. The delay was costly to Rockefeller. The option held by Frick expired by time limit. And that precious million dollars advanced uh, by Rockefeller, what became of that? Carnegie, Carnegie declared it forfeited and held on to it. Frick was enraged and Rockefeller resentful. Henceforth, the animosity between Frick and Carnegie deepened, while Rockefeller contained himself to the day when he would even matters with Carnegie. Meanwhile, a new factor had burst into upset all of Frick's and Rockefeller's caref- carefully nursed ambitions. This factor was J. Pierpont Morgan. <laughs> the bridge and the tube trusts, owned largely by Morgan, had been planning to manufacture their own uh, billets, Right. That's how you say that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Um, so. Billets. Yeah, billets. Uh, Yeah, had been planning to manufacture their own billets. As the Carnegie works were flourishing in the billet trade, the news was of momentous importance to Carnegie. He at once prepared to retaliate, but how could he effectively do so? What form of reprisal would be quickest and most telling? Carnegie had grown seared with experience in the machinations of trade. He was not the magnate to be taught how to strike at a competitor's most vital point. The word flew forth that he intended to go into the bridge and tube business. Here was an announcement for Morgan to ponder and scowl over. But another edict, it is no exaggeration to speak of the orders issued by Magnates as edicts followed in rapid order. Carnegie knew of course that Morgan was an extensive owner of the Pennsylvania Railroad and its properties. If a railroad were built to compete with the Pennsylvania system, Morgan's interests and fortune would be be doubly assaulted. Carnegie allowed the information to get out that he proposed to construct his own railroads from Pittsburgh to the Great Lakes on the west and on the east to the Atlantic Ocean. He went on with the plan as though he were in dead earnest. He rushed surveying parties to map out the route. The effect upon Morgan was galvanic. Perhaps Carnegie was bluffing in return for bluffs, but the situation was too serious for trifling. Carnegie might carry out his threats. There was the danger. Had Morgan been dealing with the U.S. government, he would have felt no great concern at threats that he knew he could safely ignore. But in contesting with Carnegie, he was opposed by a magnate of whose power he had reason to be grimly apprehensive. How could Carnegie be placated or dissuaded or prevented from carrying out his ominous plans? One heroic way there was, to buy him out and organize a trust. Thereupon, it is related. Morgan betook himself post-haste to Carnegie. No time was lost in unessentials. The magnates went straight to the point. Morgan inquired of Carnegie for what sum he would sell his plants. With a clever expression of indifference, Carnegie sententiously replied, 300 millions. A silence ensued. I love that, 300 millions. 300 (laughs) millions. (laughs) Yes. A silence ensued. The magnates looked craftily at each other. Whether Morgan was aware that only a short time previously, Carnegie had agreed to sell it to Frick for 100 million is not known. On his part, Carnegie believed that he had Morgan in a corner which conviction was clearly worth a raise of two hundred million. Perhaps Carnegie, in the style of the excellent businessman, asked an exorbitant price so as to compromise on a sum larger than he really expected. Morgan's next words must have surprised him. There was no drawn-out haggling, no comment of any character. Take it in mortgage, asked Morgan brusquely, (laughs) provided it covers the whole proposed combination, Carnegie replied. The trade was then in their arranged. The remainder was simply a matter of formalities and ratifications. Carnegie was pleased with himself. Two great objects he had accomplished. He had obtained an immense purchase price far beyond his expectations, and he was now able to carry out a yearning that he had long indulged of in divesting himself of active business cares and of playing the exclusive role of the retired and philanthropic captain of industry. Doubtless, he felt quite positive that he had outwitted even the great J. Pierpont Morgan. But as time passed, he found good grounds to have doubts of his astuteness. Subsequently, after Morgan had demonstrated how vast sums could be taken in with facility and jobbery in the stock issues of the steel trust, Carnegie began to look back and perceive that he, not Morgan, was the outdone one, not a pleasant feeling for a man who had been self-satisfied that he was as sharp as any of the other magnates. While Carnegie was ostentatiously dispensing millions for public libraries and preaching the doctrine that it was a disgrace to die rich, he was secretly fuming over the fact that he had not held up Morgan for $100 billion more. <laughs> this story was current in Wall Street, and this is pretty funny. Uh, this is apparently what happened once. Uh, many months later, Carnegie and Morgan were on the same Atlantic liner bound for recreation in foreign fields. Coming down late to their morning coffee, there was a few minutes for reminiscence between them. Do you know, Mr. Morgan, said Carnegie, I have been thinking it over, and I find I made a mistake. I should have asked you another hundred million for those Carnegie properties. If you had, I should have paid it, <laughs> responded Morgan in his frank, unfeeling truthfulness. And <laughs> Carnegie, so the story goes, was so soured in his soul that he could take no more toast and marmalade. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. No more marmalade. Oh, wow. No more marmalade. Yeah, wow. Brutal. He got He got Just took. Brutal. He got fucking took, you know, so that's like Jack Dorsey in like a year will be like, yeah, (laughs) I should have asked you, 44,
3: 45 billion or whatever. Yeah,
2: yeah, he'll be on like a silent retreat in Bhutan and like, he'll have that conversation with Elon Musk, but just staring at each other, like, (laughs) and realize it. So yeah, so he got this US steel, uh, combine basically.
3: Yeah, I've been hearing like shit that he, the Twitter deal might not go through.
2: I have. Like, and yeah. it is weird by the way that we were like making all these comparisons to it and we recorded that like before the deal was announced. Yeah. Uh, another synchronicity. Mm-hmm. You know. But uh, but yeah, now they're saying that maybe he's trying to like tank it on purpose, uh, by talking shit about Twitter. Maybe, I don't know if that's accurate. Yeah, maybe I don't that's know. like wishful thinking by blue checks. Perhaps. I, I don't, don't know. know. Like Who knows what he's up to, though? I mean, I guess but
3: for Blue Jets, like even if he tanked Twitter on purpose, you know, if it did have an effect, then that would be devastating for them because like, you know, they love it. Well, I don't think Twitter would would go away either way you know, if yeah, that deal I collapsed. Um, but was the thing a is, like, it's yeah. But the thing is, like, he's using, just he like, took control and ran into the ground on purpose, like, I don't know. Oh, well, yeah, he, he could
2: shady. be pulling a, a real Jay Gould. Yeah, exactly. Twitter. Or what and they then, all
3: did, they all did that a million times, like, purposely And then run buy like the 100 ground. million with,
2: shares of Truth Social stock.
3: <laughs> even with U.S. Steel, it was like the same thing, you know, yeah, like where, uh, you know, he didn't know anything about how, about Steel or like how to manage it. But um very yeah, common theme have- none of
2: these guys actually he gets into that a lot in hereditary american fortunes how like the and i mean going back to like the, the pacific quartet that yeah like none of them actually knew had like anything about these businesses except the all-important you know figures of profit and loss yeah. etc um so okay so now he's in control of uh, oh yeah I, re- I actually wrote something here um Yeah, okay, on 260, oh, this is interesting. This will, I think, come up, this will kind of come up in a little bit. Yeah, he also talks about, this is interesting to today. He says that um, this is a real changing of the guard because Carnegie had grown up in the steel business he knew its details and technique with consummate thoroughness in addition he had adopted the plan of making partners in a measure of subordinates who had proved their capacity in both the knowledge of the manufacture of steel and in methods calculated to increase profits neither morgan nor rockefeller nor Gould had any technical knowledge of how to run a steel plant left right. to themselves they could not have managed a factory for a single minute but <laughs> as the capitalist system went they were not required to have the slightest training in running railroads factories steamships or mines they could annex or engage men of experience to do this for them. So how were the great steel plans to be directed now that the industry had gone out of the hands of owners who personally had to know how to do that directing? The problem was very simple or rather it was no problem at all. Morgan followed Carnegie's plan of putting skilled men at the directing head and of allowing them to share somewhat in the division of stock and profits. Highly significant of the methods of capitalists was their selection of directing managers. We've seen how when Schwab and Corey were superintendents of the Carnegie plants, a congressional committee in 1894 had denounced them individually in a tame enough report as being specifically responsible for the armor plate frauds. Did Carnegie discontinue their services? At that very time, Carnegie was thrusting himself forward publicly as a pious benefactor and a lofty citizen. Did he show any indignation at Schwab's and Corey's methods? How could he? Had they not thereby shown what valuable profit producers they were? He prized their services so much that he not only bestowed continuous marks of favor upon them, but he later elevated them to be directors and minor partners. They were identically the men whom Morgan also wanted. From a capitalist point of view, they were highly efficient. When Morgan organized the steel Trust, to whom did he turn as his selection for executives? To Schwab and Corey. They successfully occupied the position of President of the US Steel uh, Steel Corporation. Indeed, Schwab expanded to be somewhat of a magnate himself, and incontrovertibly proved that he had learned proficiency in genuine magnate methods. Organizing the United States shipbuilding company on his own hook, he and his associates issued false prospectuses, decoyed investors, fraudulently made a gift to themselves of 55 million in securities and otherwise committed such fraud upon fraud that after the company had gone into (laughs) bankruptcy, the receiver denounced the whole transaction as quote, an artistic swindle. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. uh, Based ships, uh, you know, just like a a Tesla or like a spaceship, you know, Mm -hmm. um, very similar. Okay, so oh yeah, and then I did mark here um he says the steel trust was the first trust to establish a scientific control over uh the three factors of I guess uh vast deposits of iron iron and coal and also uh railroad and steamship lines at its at its it had its plants It had the rail and steamship lines and it had iron ore and coal as well. So it had Mm -hmm. like everything. And the steel trust was the first to establish scientific control over these three factors. So indispensable to the perfect operation of a trust. Basically, by doing this, it at once reduced nearly all of such competitors as it had to non entities. And then, yeah, this. okay, this part, actually, I wrote down uh, sounds exactly like GameStop, Tesla, Dogecoin.
3: (laughs) Okay, Uh, 40
2: million stock profits within a year. So, uh, the profits made by Morgan were instantaneous and gigantic. The stock obtained by him, he was able to sell at a market price of about 50. By October 1902, Morgan and his immediate partners in the syndicate had already distributed 40 million in profits. From whom did these stock jobbing profits come? From a host of middle class investors throughout the world. Lured on by the glowing prospectuses of the steel trust and certain that the money that they put in would produce large dividends and the stock would rise in value, they literally scrambled to pay over their money for the stock. After the process had been exhaustively worked by the manipulators, the price of common stock was gradually beat down until in 1904, it sank to eight and three quarters. Hordes of middle-class investors were ruined. The magnates had transferred their money to their own pockets. This kind of operation has been repeated several times with great success. When the little fellows parted with their stocks at low prices, the magnates would buy it back, and then by forcing declaration of dividends and making rosy reports of the steel business, would force up the market quotations and sell the stock back again, with resulting immense profits. By such such methods, Morgan and his associated clique have taken in hundreds of millions of dollars. If it be asked from whom these hundreds of millions in stock-jobbing profits directly came, the answer is simple. From the well-to-do not merely in the u.s but the world over the involuntary donors comprised the foreign aristocracy as well as the american tradesmen the small manufacturers and the professional class the british lords and the european continental money divisions revealed themselves fully as eager as the native investors to relieve morgan of his vast encumbrance of paper supply otherwise called stock they poured in their money and he distributed his paper he was swamped with orders was ever such naive and trusting confidence shown as was displayed by these hosts of investors their simple faith in the excellencies of the magnates could not be shaken repeatedly had they or other multitudes of individuals in their own classes been inveigled into wall street and dexterously cheated but these frequent experiences instead of implanting a wisdom tempered by enduring suspicion passed over them without leaving a trace The merchants and petty manufacturers in particular who prided themselves on being so adroit and defrauding the working class (laughs) responded every time to the insinuating song of the magnates. And every time they did so, they found themselves ravished of their money. Hmm. You know, so that's very much like all the meme stocks today. Like that probably, those are the people for the most part, I think that are getting into like, day trading and getting hyped off of all these different things, or in crypto for that matter, is like you got a lot of people with like some money to put in. But like enough that, I mean, you just remember all those memes from last year of like, dude, like I HODL, took out another mortgage HODL, on my house. We're hodling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, like, I, I cashed out my entire 401k, like put it into Dogecoin or something. And then, you know, Elon Musk like, like makes a joke on Twitter and it crashes.
3: Yeah, right. Exactly.
2: As right. if he did not fucking probably dump his Do- you think he dumped some of his dogecoin before he made a tweet trashing it which made it collapse you think maybe yeah you know and it's like the funny thing about cryptocurrency and i guess to a lesser extent things like Robinhood and like these apps where you can trade now is it's kind of bringing back this like early 20th century kind of lawless wild west terrain of betting on like very shady security assets you know, and like now fucking NFT. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, anyways. Um,
3: well, what's so interesting about this to me is that, well, actually like, you know, the, the next part I just think is like worth reading because it's just so great, like in terms of his prose, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, no word must be uttered against their methods of swindling the workers from whom the, came the wealth seized from them. Such protests, uh, sorry, I lost them. Such places were dangerous agitation. Let them, however, be defrauded by the Wall Street magnets and curses were not uh, severe enough. But back the shorn would flock to Wall Street like a dog returning to the master who scourges it. Um, <laughs> you know, and then he talks a little bit about is I think the thing about the middle class is interesting because really kind of what he's talking about uh, happening is that like this sort of like more like something that's a bit more accurate in terms of like the representation or like uh, the sort of laissez-faire, like free market representation that is still like evoked in American politics, like mm-hmm. was sort of the capitalism of like the the middle class that they wanted to maintain. But that was just like wiped out of existence by this accumulation of wealth by these, these families like uh, and by these magnates. Like he says, like another again phenomenon, yeah, must be significantly noticed. Even if considerable sections of this middle class warily kept away from the stock market adventuring, their money was nevertheless used by the magnets, as though it were the assured property of those magnets. Astonishingly paradoxical as it seems, it was and is a bitter joke on the pure-blind middle class— the profits made by the small manufacturers and their retailers and swindling the workers by selling adulterated, inferior, and shortweight products were deposited in the banks. These deposits were utilized by the trust organizers to obliterate the very class owning them, a class hating the trust with a deadly enmity. Such was the incongruous situation to which the middle class was oblivious. The great magnets controlled vastly powerful New York banks. These institutions in turn held control over hundreds, if not thousands, of smaller banks throughout the country. The stock issues of the Steel Trust, as well as those of many other trusts, were sold to these banks. The trust magnets lifted out the money of the middle class and the banks in exchange received the watered stock and bonds. Um yep. Yeah, it's interesting because I was like uh like earlier this week I was listening, I actually listened to the entirety of an interview that uh, Tucker Carlson did on uh Tucker Carlson Today, which uh-huh. I first thought was like Tucker Carlson's morning show, but I think that it's like it's like his, his streaming show. show. Yeah, basically. But he had uh Curtis Yarvin, aka Moldbug, uh Mencius Moldbug on. Did you watch that?
2: I actually didn't watch. It. I just read uh, that like Vanity Fair article about like the new right or
3: something yeah well, uh moldbug on it actually, you know uh he was on like good behavior generally. you know he still was like inveighing against democracy, et cetera, et cetera. but at the same time, you know, like when you read this kind of thing, like it's hard to really argue with at least the first part of like his principle uh that like you know he says like a uh, we don't live in a democracy, and he's like, and we shouldn't. Like, I don't know as much about, like, the second one, but, uh, you know, it's hard to argue with him when you read, like, this type of thing. And he had an interesting point of it in New York Times, which is that, like, it's, like, a fifth-generation hereditary monarchy. It's, uh, in light of that, it's weird because now he's kind of playing to, like, the Tucker audience, which is, like, so motivated by these, like, cultural grievances, you know? It was funny. Yeah. There, what My favorite line from his whole thing was that he was like, I, you know, Tucker, I was talking to your, uh, your makeup professional and she, you know, she comes from a rural area and it, it, like his whole like self-styling is so funny. Cause he's like, you know, I'm a defector from the liberal, you know, like, I, yeah, I'm sure he thinks that he would be like a great King or whatever, but he's like a Brown alum who should no, no one who has any <laughs> attachment to Brown should ever be King of anything. But, uh, anyway, well, yeah, he said like, you know, I was talking to your makeup professional and, uh, you know she said that she you know she comes from like the, and, and people you know give her a hard time just because she came to work at fox and you know later on in the interview tucker said you know he mentioned like i'm someone who's hated i'm just simply hated and uh He's like, Tucker starts saying like, and why do they hate you? They hate you because, and then uh, Moebug without like missing a beat, like, you know, cuts him off. And it's like, they hate me for the same reason they hate your makeup professional. You know, because I sympathize with their enemies. It's like, well, I think it's a bit different. Like, you know, you kind of like are a known uh, exponent of like... Uh, monarchy and like uh, absolutism which like gen- you know people generally are opposed to but it's interesting to see that type of thing get like play on like you know for that audience like uh you know sort of like a pro-absolutist message like it's weird because like i don't know i, I wonder how that no, like factors we are, we are like, in, in strange o-
2: times with the, those national co- we, we talked about them in the integralism episodes um this like national conservatism kind of movement which is um, kind of it, it reading all this stuff about the middle class rage against the trusts. It does kind yeah. of it, it. seems kind of similar. It's Which like is the like what class
3: Republicans for most of my life have believed in like the what the middle class ideals are being called by Myers, like the idea of like laissez faire competition. Yes. And now it, but all know, these it guys, like,
2: even uh, allegedly Peter Thiel, have like defected from like old school Republican libertarianism sometime in the 2010s. Yeah. And now, like... Almost I Peter Thiel
3: especially, because he's, like, yeah. actually, like, the biggest, like, mold bug sponsor. Like, he believes... He is. Like, they're, like, best yeah. friends now. The, yeah. They,
2: and they all hang out with J.D. Vance and of course. Yeah. and people like that. And, I mm-hmm. mean, like, it, like J.D. Vance was quoted in that Vanity Fair article of saying, like, the culture war is a class war, you know? And it's, yeah. like, that's the kind of like the woke capital tip that they're all on right now. It is kind right, of, like, yeah, Which is funny,
3: because, like, it's an interesting way of, like, going... Like, but... Yeah, it's weird that that's, like, what has convinced them to, like, be opposed to, like, J.P. Morgan. But it's also kind of contradictory in a way because, like, these are monarchs, like, hereditary monarchs in many cases. So, like, if that's the system that you like, you know, it's just, like, the issue of the exactly. values you don't like. You know, like, Moldbug was talking about how he loves... I'm just calling him Moldbug even though he was as Yarvin on the show. But i will always, yeah. always be Moldbug to me. He was... uh you know, talking about how you know he kind of loves Hamilton. You know, for he's he sort of creating the financial system that he created and for centralizing power in the U.S. government. He even like had a certain admiration for FDR because of you know the uh, much like Gustavus Myers for like this oh, absolute yeah. no, aspects of, of his uh, regime. Uh, well, even so, one of
2: them said, I, I forget it was Vance or like somebody else that were like, we stand for like a strong social democracy that like respects like religion and families or something like that. Yeah. And, and it's like, huh? Like it, you're even saying like you support like a strong social democratic state. That is very different from like the Reagan era Republicans. It's basically. funny.
3: Cause it's almost like, it's weird. Like it's almost like when, uh, you know, for this has been the status quo, like, you know, we've had this sort of like plutocratic, like anti-democratic system of omnipotent magnates, like for a long ass time. And they were all down with it and, like, pretended that it was, like, the free marketing competition. But now that, like, it's become, like, uh, sort of a a gloss on these companies that they're going to, like, say that they aren't racist or whatever or they're going to, like, fly a pride flag, now they're, like... We do support absolutism, but like they have the wrong values. It's like weird. Like yeah, it, it is I don't weird. Know, like
2: it, it's very complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think like a little confused. Like in a yeah. not to say they're all like dumb or like idiots, but I think it's like a little bit ideologically like confused. Um, it's
3: strange. Yeah, it's almost like when they they'd had kind of like the absolutist uh, regime that they are saying that they want now like, they pretended that it was, like, meritocratic and, like, based on, like, fair competition, kind of like the middle-class laissez-faire model they stamped out. Yeah. And now they're almost saying that, like, that's not, like, we... that like so Yeah, they're saying, like, that's not what we have or something, or, like, we do have it. Like, I think they... I mean, this is a cathedral, right? Like, and things like that. So there is this kind of absolutism, but now that they're complaining about that, their solution to it is, like, that we do need a king... But yeah, I don't the, know. Well, they maybe they're just think, like defeated. They're like the they, people
2: they hate. It's just like we read earlier how there was this shift, and I think you see this become dominant in the 20th century. Like if you look at the faces of like capitalist corporations today, it is the professional, the PMC class.
3: Right. You know, basically the woke
2: tads, the wait oh. tads. But it's like these people that are educated. They like to, they love to point out at like Ivy League institutions, predominantly, like mostly Harvard and Yale, and they are basically the people that are like running like these are like the ceos like the cfos Mm -hmm. like these are the the people that maybe are work at goldman sachs on like wall street or something like that and those are people you usually kind of see like out front like a like a tim cook or somebody like that um but like they're all i think at one point in the article describes their belief is that like these people are so kind of brainwashed and conditioned like socially uh, basically through these institutions and they all adopt the same kind of like technocratic elitist sort of like worldview and stuff that they're like too kind of dumb and psyop to like realize they're even part of a conspiracy of like perpetuating like monopoly capital or something like that or that like they're actually globalists like they don't see themselves as that and they also don't see any for they don't see themselves as part of any kind of system they're just like meritocratically rising to the top and like they went to the best school and like and there's like a little bit of a, i think truth yeah to that, that, that like, sounds
3: like somewhat true yeah i mean but i would also kind of almost apply that to them and even like that they're part of the exact system that they're criticizing true like as absolutely. i just said like moldbug went literally to brown like, yeah, yeah. you
2: know, which I mean, you know, it's not like impossible to like go to one of these universities and be like, oh, wow, I'm like surrounded by susness, or like reflect upon the susness of it like later yeah, and then be sure. like, yeah, wow, this I mean, is sus. it's all yeah. part of the system. Um, no, but, I agree. You know, and I think but to act like you're he's not like a, a rural hairdresser or something.
3: <laughs> like, well, I mean, like, you know, well, he his, I think, his, you know, he acknowledges that. And I think that you definitely can. You can certainly go to like uh, any number of Ivy League schools. I think that a lot of people actually do um i mean there's a range you know there's like the dissident right uh who come out of like you know you can even be a professor like Yale and oh, at yeah, harvard exactly. law school and then like you know complain about how horrible this system is etc like so i think that that's like a, a you know like i'm not uh, like i myself like i'm part of that phenomenon in many ways like it's like pretty co- a common thing but i don't know i just feel like, i mean it's a bit hypocritical like a lot of them like are uh, sort of part and parcel of the same thing i mean like yeah, it's, I mean, they, they, they see themselves you know, as JD being like, heterodox. Yeah, they see themselves as being heterodox, but really we just have like a, a bipartite orthodoxy, which has like two sides to it. And Yeah, like you, so have there's like to, the White you
2: know. Tods and then there's like the national, the Natcons now. Yeah. And stuff like fighting over and the Natcons have kind of fallen into like the William J. Bryan position of being, or like a Teddy Roosevelt-ish kind of position of inveighing against these modern day trusts and stuff, which like for sure. These well, trusts it's interesting to think suck, about
3: but. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about how that interacts with... Because, yeah, like, back then, you know, the Democratic Party was still, like, the conservative party or like still you know no, the, it was it
2: yeah. was weird back then because like you had different factions in both parties yeah, that were just and, hobbled like, together. eventually
3: broke away and like he was a weird pick for McKinley and everything in some ways. So,
2: like, well, Exactly exactly yeah, kind of like how like weird. even going as late as like JFK and LBJ like they kind of overlapped in some things yeah. but like also very kind of like culturally economically like their political bases were different just like bizarre shit and you saw like he notes later like that there were a number a lot a fair number of like republicans often from like the great plains states that were very populist like in the 20s and 30s and like invade against like the big banks and stuff they weren't all just like gun toting like free market you know fucking cowboys like there was there was a there were progressive currents in both parties but neither party was like dominated by them until basically FDR came around and then the Democratic Party was like largely dominated by that they still the Dixie crats and shit. But mm-hmm. anyways, um just to keep yeah. just to keep moving along here. Yeah, we should um, keep moving along. But, I, I just want to mention briefly the section on the great insurance frauds because I think I mentioned In our last recording that he does get into the insurance companies and kind of like, what's the deal with them? What the fuck is up? Like, first of all, like who came up with this like sus system of insurance in the first place? It just seems, I mean, whether you're talking about health insurance or life insurance or any kind, like it always, it seems like a field that's ripe for fuckery. And, um, you know, as, uh, comrade Siskel said on that, like outtake years ago, like they're all fucking running all the, in- these wasps, they're all running the insurance companies on fucking LaSalle street. It's all a bunch of horse shit, you know? <laughs> and, and so I've always been curious, like what's and we saw how like J pierpont's more uh J. pierpont morgan's father uh junius s morgan was like on the board of etna in 1820 mm-hmm. so these mother some of these motherfuckers have been around a long time and it's like you know the goofy like bow tie wearing characters out of a pension novel are usually the people that are like running these companies who have like gone to like the ivies for generations etc so he says hundreds of millions of dollars more were held by the great insurance companies as deposits and surplus from premiums paid in yearly by immense numbers of policyholders comprising the ultra rich, the middle class and the working class in insurance companies such as the New York, the equitable and the mutual. The working class was little represented. The working men could not afford to pay the large premiums demanded. Forced to take out policies on a weekly installment payment in the industrial insurance companies, they were swindled to an even greater extent than were the policyholders of the, quote, old line companies. Their money, too, was used in providing trusts with adequate enough funds with which to bribe legislatures for franchises and other laws and to obtain extensive equipment. The Public Service Corporation which, for example, owns the public utility plants and systems of the entire state of New Jersey, was financed with the money advanced by one of these large industrial insurance corporations. Viewing the matter rationally, however, it will be at once seen that whatever the enormous accompanying frauds, the necessities of industrial and social progress demanded two interrelated lines of action. The first was the superseding of the competitive by the trust system. Since trusts was the next inevitable stage, the immense funds needed for their organization and elaboration had to come from elsewhere. Individually, the magnates lacked sufficient cash. Consequently, they were forced to take it wherever they could find it, irrespective of the nature of the methods used." so in the wielding of the colossal funds of the new york life insurance company morgan was a chief among the ruling factors while he also while also screened behind figureheads he was active in the affairs of the equitable life assurance society evidences of his power exercised through indirection were repeatedly brought out in the remarkable although fundamentally futile investigation made by a new york legislative committee in 1905 the insurance companies had a satiety of cash Morgan, Harriman, and other magnates had the stock issues. Inasmuch as obviously that stock was not issued for aesthetic exhibitions, the important and immediate consideration was to convert it into revenue. By collusion with the officials of the insurance companies, huge quantities of bonds and stocks were sold to the insurance companies. Largely with this middle class money, the magnates were enabled to finance their great railroad and trust projects. Other portions of the stock issues were sold directly to the middle class and were then manipulated so as to grind out that class still further. So, (laughs) yeah, so basically that's like that, that was like a light bulb going off of like, oh, that's why insurance companies are so important because they have huge supplies of cash. Because yeah. so many people, it's just like right. maybe the health insurance companies, everybody's got to have health care, right?
4: Mm. You know, especially
2: now you literally, everybody has to have health care. So I don't know, like, you know, that, that puts them in a very powerful, but often like overlooked uh, position, you know, yeah. where they can um, they can bankroll these magnates and nobody ever thinks about it because insurance is just such a serious, uh, old yeah. line, respectable profession Mm -hmm. um yeah (laughs) just going down a little bit here i think on 280 i wrote more fire he talks about how there were various investigations that were all they all failed
3: well i feel like even before that like the dark days for respectability is a great part uh, because it just talks about you know after all this happening i mean it's interesting you know first he talks about like the sort of the way that as we know since time immemorial they've bought like two you know they've both they buy two parties you know just like we saw with uh the recent humiliation of Disney, yeah. where they, like, gave a million dollars to uh, DeSantis or something like that. Like, maybe, uh, not a million dollars, you know, but, like, uh, like that was uh, just being hyperbolic, but, like, 50,000 or something. Like, mm. some significant sum. And then he, like, <laughs> tried to take away their charter so they can have their special private town where they, like, enforce their own laws <laughs> or whatever. And they got all upset about it. But, you know, yeah, he's talking about... Uh, you know, the immense sums spent in political corruption were stolen from the proceeds of the policyholders. With the stolen money mounting into millions of dollars, the magnates bought their way into every state legislature in the union. They purchased the way for themselves or for their allies, which is like pretty vital because, yeah, you know, that gets people into the Senate, as he says, you know, purchasing a way for themselves or their allies in the United States Senate. They carried the demands in both the Republican and the Democratic parties. An arrangement more destructive to the existing arrangement of society could not be found that was contained in the facts and uh, they were by no means all the facts reported by that committee, you know, that investigated this. The substantial conclusion was, although not set forth in so many plain words, that the administrative officials, the legislatures, Congress, the courts, and the old political parties were controlled and dominated by groups of unparalleled frauds and pirates. For the sums diverted to ensure this political control were only a tithe of the aggregate stupendous thefts. Following close upon the investigation came suits against the high financiers for the restitution of more than Wow, uh, $10 million, and these suits were but indications of still vaster sums fraudulently taken. The suits were compromised. And so then what happened was that it was dark days for respectability, which I thought was a great section. Uh, He writes, uh, It was a period of travail for respectability. Much explaining had to be done, which, in such a case, is always a confession. The directors or swayers of those insurance companies comprised some of the most super-eminent magnates and exalted philanthropists in the United States. Elegant society suffered no shock at the revelations, for it was built and sustained, every part and woof of it, by theft, fraud, bribery, and exploitation. But the apologists and retainers, whose vocation it was to strew praise in the path of the money monarchs, were egregiously put out of face. What could they say when such of their heroes as George J. Gould, Alfred G. Vanderbilt, John Jacob Astor, August Belmont, Jacob H. Schiff, Henry C. Frick, uh, yeah, you know, many know the Frick Gallery, uh, D.O. Mills, and many others were being shown up either as participants or as responsible heads. More galling still was the besmearing of their great idols, E.H. Harriman, and above all, the devout and philanthropic J. Pierpont Morgan. All of these money conquerors have been interminably glorified, Nothing had been too extravagant to say of them, and now they could be seen twisting and squirming in the uncomfortable act of, quote-unquote, being caught. Good repute may be, as the poets and philosophers say, a priceless possession, but these magnets did not mind the temporary hurt. For temporary, it simply was. A little time would pass, and then the newspapers, magazines, college presidents, and clergy, largely owned or subsidized by the magnets, would resume their interrupted uh, chorus of praise, and all would be well again a bit of the plunder thrown out to universities and churches would add to the magical effect. Yeah. Another interesting point about universities that they're completely bought and sold like by these people and like are deeply, yeah, like uh, ultimately like deeply conservative institutions. Like, but anyway, hence it was not any loss of reputation that the magnates and their satraps feared. The one and only disquieting prospect was that being shunted away, that of being shunted away to prisons. Throughout the United States, the insurance disclosures, the outcropping facts of the vast, long-continuing corruption and frauds had called forth a friendly demand at first that the guilty be rushed to trial and imprisoned. But that demand, if carried out, would have entailed a unique and unprecedented situation. Should all of the guilty be jailed—this well, is when they're too big to fail— Yep. Should all the guilty be jailed, or even a number of them, the nation would have been deprived of many of its foremost magnates, its greatest philanthropists, <laughs> its most exemplary patriots. How could society have survived such a loss? According to Orthodox teachings, these men were imperative to the proper administration and the well being of the whole social and industrial system. Incarcerate the great magnates, philanthropists, and patriots, even though they were also the greatest plunderers? The thought was impossible.
2: It sure was. Um,
3: it sure was. Yes, it sure was. Yeah. so there yeah.
2: was an exposure of the great insurance scandals. Um, I yes. think in the, the early 1900s but it did not uh, the reform
3: nothing <laughs> happened they had nothing to be afraid of yeah the quote unquote um,
2: reformer William Travers Jerome the District Attorney of New York County uh, tried to take action proceeding against a few of the satraps and figureheads but, uh, but they, they concluded that all the magnates that they investigated if they did commit grand larceny it had been done without criminal intent
3: exactly
2: mm. yeah cr- oh. it's
3: all about criminal intent yeah they didn't yeah. mean to Yeah. Yeah. The thousands of poor offenders hurried off to prison were obviously afflicted with an overabundance of the same criminal intent. (laughs) Yet, for a rich and powerful man to commit any fraud with criminal intent was a principle unknown to practical jurisprudence.
2: Yeah. He also Uh, says, you know, he's definitely hammered home before how, like, the the guise of quote unquote reform could be used by the capitalists. So he says, you know, what was the outcome of this extraordinary investigation? Uh, Again, was seen the operation of that principle so often brought out in these chapters that every quote reform wave of a capitalist order of society is used by the great capitalists to aggrandize their wealth and power. Taking advantage of the popular discredit of the large insurance companies and making fine assertions of the reforms that he intended to bring about, Thomas F. Ryan secured control of the Equitable Life Assurance Society, completely frustrating Harriman's efforts to the same end. Ryan's career and the facts as to how he obtained his immense wealth were so generally known that his appearance in the role of a, quote, reformer was the signal for an instantaneous outburst of public sarcasm, which Ryan did not at all mind, seeing that he had carried his assault. So, yeah, that uh so it just enabled them to like get more control over uh insurance companies.
3: Yeah. Um, awesome. And uh yeah. it did remind me a little bit of elizabeth holmes that's the whole issue in her trial too right is that like did she mean to do it or was she just like trying to help people yeah like, she, she just, just believed really she believed machine? that it
2: would work one day you know
3: yeah exactly so it's yeah it's amazing how it's it really is interesting how there's such a class component to that like very idea that like you know if you went to stanford like you couldn't have meant to do it you yeah, know you could only uh, meant to
2: achieve greatness and and yeah exactly and that's not a crime yeah. Trying
3: to achieve greatness isn't a crime. In fact, it's commendable.
2: Yeah. So, um, quite the contrary. So, he talks here a little bit. Oh, I did want to mention this about the source of profits on 280. You know, he he was mentioning how the virtuous middle class, the backbone of the country, was being swindled and they were starting to get very mm-hmm. enraged at, uh, you know, places like U.S. Steel. <laughs> But he says, agitated over their own misfortunes and expropriation, these investors excoriated Morgan and the other magnates. And their actuating reason was what? That of not being allowed to have a hand in the profits. Who has not heard pigs squeal when a hog usurps the trough? (laughs) Yeah, so he says the value of the stock depended at bottom upon the trade profits of the business. Those profits came from the labor in the mills and the exploitation of the manufactured product, the price of which exploitation was indirectly taxed upon the working class wherever steel was sold or used. Were the petty investors so clamorous for their insecurity and comfort, uneasy at the conditions under which masses of men and boys worked in the iron and coal mines and in the steel manufacturing plants, did they experience any qualms at the long hours and low pay and the squalid, often revolting life to which those workers were forced? Did the bestial degradation and frightful destitution so often encountered in steel mill quarters disturb their thoughts? Or were they impressed by the ghastly casualties in the mills or the, disease, or the diseases rife in the working men's quarters causing an undiminished slaughter of women, men, and children? Did the investors, whose understanding of injustice was so sensitively acute when they were robbed or in distress, see any injustice in such conditions in this exploitation they saw nothing by a quote righteous system of industry from which they eagerly sought profit they were not ignorant of the existence of these conditions it was with a knowledge not always full but some realization nevertheless of them that they sophisticatedly bought steel trust stock to share in the profits When an exposure was made in 1908 of some of these conditions, not more than a handful of stockholders protested against the horrors, exceptions among their class to which we gladly draw attention. In its long duel with the magnates, the middle class ever and always insisted that its grievances be heard and respectfully treated. Yet let the workers make the slightest move for redress and that class with stony rigidity would demand their repression as quote, disturbers of business if for no other reason. So he goes on to talk about the, um, quite ironically, there was an investigation called the Pittsburgh survey, which was carried out by none other than the Russell Sage endowment, who we talked about earlier. And, um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, he says that 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 fact that it was Russell Sage enhances its prestige for citation purposes. Um, (laughs) And he also notes that uh, the report was published in a magazine conducted by the Charity Organization Society of New York City, under which title appears, what? The name of J. Pierpont Morgan as treasurer of that society. (laughs) Now we are invulnerably on safe footing. (laughs) To a report issued (laughs) under such exalted auspices, who would be so reckless as to impute inaccuracy or impartiality? (laughs) More especially so in as much as this report has been generally commended for its accuracy, and accuracy, it may be added, toned with an extremely conservative treatment. So this is called Condition of the Steelworkers, and this is uh, paints quite a picture of what it was like to work for one of those great Carnegie Steel companies. So the reporter said uh, the U.S. Steel Corporation owns property in the south side of Pittsburgh, just beyond the Point Bridge. Here is located the old Painter's Mill, which is one of the plants of the Carnegie Steel Company, which in turn is one of the constituent companies of U.S. Steel. And here also stands what remains of Painter's Row, where the company has housed certain of its employees, mostly immigrants. When the Carnegie Steel Company took over Painter's Mill, it renovated the plant so as to turn out the sort and quantity of output which the Carnegie name stands for. When it took over Painter's Row, it did nothing. When, a little over a year ago, and several years after the purchase of the property, I made a detailed investigation of the place, I found half a thousand people living there under conditions that were unbelievable back-to-back houses with no, th- no through ventilation, cellar kitchens, dark, unsanitary, ill-ventilated, overcrowded sleeping rooms, no drinking water supply on the premises, and a dearth of sanitary accommodations that was shameful. The writer hastens to add, the story of Painter's Row should be considered in its bearings. The U.S. Steel is building a remarkable new town at Gary, Indiana, its subsidiary companies have promoted mm-hmm. house building along original lines, notably at Vandegraft, Ambridge, and Lorraine, and the Carnegie Steel Company has fair, low rental houses at Munhall and elsewhere. On the other hand, other Pittsburgh corporations own company houses, which have been equally as bad as Painter's Row. And a similar story could be written of a shack at one time owned by one of the most foremost Protestant churches of Pittsburgh and raised to the ground only because the head worker of Kingsley House had the courage to publish, publish its picture and the name of the owner. And let's see. Oh, yeah. The other thing he says about the conditions, which I found interesting as uh Probably a pretty good description of the life that, like, my Polish great grandfather led <laughs> in this country, like 120 <laughs> right, years yeah. ago. Um, oh,
3: yeah, this is the part about the Slavs and Italians. Yes, it uh, is. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> this is. Right. Yeah, it says uh,
2: yet. You know it talks about how oh well they're building new model towns in gary yet gustava says we have seen in the case of the town of pullman how these quote model towns work out how the workers are reduced to a state of serfdom exploited at every turn in the mills and out and such efficiency as comes from fairly decent living quarters simply redounds as a quote good investment to the profit of the mill owners of the conditions noted further in pittsburgh one more extract from the voluminous report which might well be termed a chamber of horrors, will give an additional insight. (laughs) So he says, quote, It is a common opinion in the district that some employers of labor give the Slavs and Italians preference because of their docility, their habit of silent submission, their amenability to discipline, and their willingness to work long hours and overtime without a murmur. Foreigners, as a rule, earn the lowest wages and work the full stint of hours. I found them in the machine shops working 60 hours a week, At the blast furnaces, working 12 hours a day for seven days in the week, the common laborer in and around the mills works 72 hours a week. The unit of wages is an hour rate for day labor, and a slav is willing to take the longer hours, 12 hours (laughs) a day for men who work 14 and 16 in the fatherland, with extra work on Sundays, especially in connection with clearing the yards and repairing. Possibly 60-70% to 70% of the laborers in the mills come out Sundays and the mechanics and other laborers on occasions work 36 hours in order that the plant may start on time. In one mill, I found Russians, Greek Orthodox, in favor for the reason that they gladly worked on Sundays. Many work in intense heat, the din of machinery and the noise of escaping steam. The congested condition of most of the plants in Pittsburgh adds to the physical discomforts for an out-of-doors people... <laughs> That's funny. (laughs) While their ignorance of the language and of modern machinery (laughs) increases the risk, how many of the Slavs, Lithuanians and Italians are injured in Pittsburgh in one year is not known. No reliable statistics are compiled. In their absence, people guess and the mischief wrought by contradictory and biased statements is met on all hands. When I mentioned a plant that had a bad reputation to a priest, he said, oh, that is the slaughterhouse. They kill them there every day. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck? I quote him not for his accuracy, but to show how the rumors, uh, is it a rumor? Circulate and are real to the people themselves. It is undoubtedly true that, exaggerated though the reports may be, the waste in life and limb is great, and if it f- all fell upon the native born, a cry would long since have gone up which would have stayed the slaughter. Jesus. Wow. Wow. Okay. That is the slaughterhouse. They kill them there every day.
3: Yeah. Nice word. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Indeed. Awesome.
2: So that's where the profits actually come from, not by this like satanic uh, money magnate, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, yeah, he's literally
3: sacrificing them to Moloch. He is literally Um, just throwing
2: them into the fiery furnace of Moloch. Basically. Yeah. Um,
3: It's almost like cartoonish, like a Jack Chick thing,
2: Uh, like. It's Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like all those like puck cartoons that I, I, I think I found and I posted on Instagram of like every magnate uh, like was drawn as a spider at various points. Like yeah. Jay Gould, like a spider on a web of telegraph cables like above <laughs> like the courthouse. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um Exactly. It is a spider world. So, you know, you might think for all of this, uh, this horror that at least we got, you know, prosperity and stability from this system of rationalization, but, uh, you would be mistaken if you thought that because the next chapter is about the panic of 1907 when Morgan became, right. quote, the, the savior, savior of the nation. nation. Yeah. Yay. Uh, Yeah.
3: He underwent apotheosis. Um,
2: Yeah, he did. Yeah, he says around their genesis methods and characters, the magnates weave romantic yarns. They supply the inspiration, a host of writers and orders trained to transfer that romancing into catchwords and phrases, carry it to the people and popularize it until it becomes an almost adamantine tradition. Always it is the same species of romance, the toil, the thrift, the integrity and the wonderful ability by which the magnates reap their fortunes, their heroism in time of war, their saving philanthropy in all great crises. Yep. The audacity of these, quote, literary puffers is as great as the imposture of the magnates whom they cover with adulation. In the very commission of vast frauds and thefts, the magnates will pose as public-spirited patriotic men. Their puffers hasten to paint them likewise. There is no judicious waiting until time has receded, and the actual facts are more or less forgotten. The very enormities of the magnates are once transformed into acts of the greatest purity, and the people are called upon to applaud. In every conceivable manner the press, or at least a considerable section of it, is manipulated to counter counteract the effect of disclosure. The
3: example that he gives is amazing. Yeah. It's in Pearson's magazine. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah called that. Morgan the Magnificent, <laughs> right? Uh yeah. Uh, there were scenes in the Saving of Wall Street by John Pierpont Morgan that can never be written. Things said and done that cannot and should not even be remembered. Even in those days of excitement, horror, and confusion heroism crimes blunders treacheries and martyrdoms that span the whole capacity of man for glory or shame for until the continent came half crying half cursing out of the trembling madness that threatened to bring down the banking system of the country into ruins smash the credit of the nation and smirch its name men were in a nameless bewilderment of fear beyond words to express as in the presence of some impending and irresistible convulsion of nature the boldest and keenest become craven and stupid Plain Mr. Morgan, fresh from the dronings of a great Episcopal Church convention in Richmond, was suddenly aroused by the peril of the financial situation to a demonstration of courage, strength, and personal masterfulness that brought order and confidence out of chaos and despair, and there is little history to compare to the sight of this stout, secretive American banker of 70 years, withdrawing from the passionless company of bishops and ministers intent on religious ideals to take command of the fierce, clashing money forces of Wall Street, gone crazy out of sheer fright to become the protagonist and hero of the most cynical, suspicious, treacherous, cruel, arrogant, and cowardly human elements in the world. (laughs)
2: Cool story, bro. Tell me more.
3: This is like very Batman, right? He even calls him suspicious, cowardly. You know, he's the hero of them. Like he's kind of like this aesthetic person. Who yeah? Risks,
2: so he sees the bat signal in the sky. He's like the there's, there's a superhero. bat signal. There's yeah, like exactly. a money sign, like a money symbol. Yeah, yeah.
3: The <laughs> dollar sign. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. He's <laughs> he the yeah, dollar sign a, of the sky. Yeah, to, it's a top which hat is with like around. a dollar sign on um, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he even has like a a ghoul, like kind of scary appearance, like Batman. You know? Yeah, his disfigured face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, he's mm-hmm. the original mm-hmm. Two Face. Yes, but so. I guess, let's see, the the panic of 1907, he says, The panic of 1907, like previous panics, supplied the propitious opportunity to the great magnates to crush out lesser magnates and seize control of their property. The requirements of industrial centralization demanded the effacement of certain minor magnate groups which, from the point of view of the great magnates, had possessed themselves a rather dangerous degree of industrial and financial power. These ambitious little magnates had imitated the methods of the great. They had combined fraudulent financial manipulation with the oppressive exercise of political power and thereby had tricked or forced at the owners of various properties and had then vested the ownership of those properties in themselves. The form is the usual one of organizing large corporations with, with immense amounts of watered stock. These corporations were built upon the ruin, extinguishment, or buying out of members of former independent businessmen. So he, he talks about the clique of the Heinz Morse Thomas group, which I wrote kind of got like BCC eyed in the panic of 1907 mm-hmm. um, right. or they get made off and made the, the ob- obligatory right. Patsy. Um, so yes. they had 12 banks and two trust companies, a coastwise steamship company and large copper mines, a trust in ice and various other properties and the control of some of these properties was largely secured by means of the enormous profits robbed from the poor by the exactions of the ICE Trust. I didn't even know the fucking ICE Trust was the thing, but apparently it was. This yeah. robbery was made possible and easy by means of a corrupt alliance between Morse and the Tammany administration in new york and uh
3: i mean i just imagine it was a much bigger deal back then before like they didn't have refrigerators yeah they had ice boxes yeah.
2: um and apparently right. like this you know he they colluded to get a, a total monopoly on new york's ice supply in 18 um or this was exposed in an investigative committee the Mazet committee in 1899 that the ice trust had colluded to get a monopoly uh mayor van wick a puppet of tammany leaders admitted in his testimony before Judge Gaynor, the New York Supreme Court, that he had obtained 5,000 shares worth $500,000 of ICE trust stock. And he alleged that he had paid uh, $57,000 in cash for them. Um, (laughs) Pressed for proof to substantiate his statement. He failed to prove that he'd actually paid anything.
4: (laughs) The <laughs> testimony
2: before the Mazat Committee conclusively showed the corrupt arrangement between the ICE Trust and the city officials was such as to compel the people to pay 60 cents a hundred pounds. And that the, the trust had stopped the sale of five cent pieces of ice, practically cutting off the supply of the very poor. With its assured monopoly, the ICE Trust declined to make the slightest uh, concession. And then the next section, the next section is... Uh, Sorry, the the next section is millions from suffering disease and death.
3: The result was a
2: noticeably great increase in the rate of mortality among children of the poor. Large numbers of families living on the most precarious edge of destitution could not afford to pay the extra five cents demanded for a piece of ice. The milk soured and acted like poison on the children. The increasing number of deaths in successive summers when the terrific heat made ice an absolute necessity, especially in the congested tenements, could be traced in large part to the methods of the ice trust. Millions of other people who could ill afford to pay the exactions demanded were compelled to give up extra tribute or go without ice." This was not a temporary condition. It has continued so ever since the organization of the ICE Trust. The methods then adopted prevail now. And that was the same methods as capitalism in every field. But yeah, just murdering children by like not even selling like the smallest pieces of ice for poor people to buy. (laughs) So all the food spoils and they die. Amazing. Um, Yeah. uh, Really amazing. So then. Yeah. So then, they beautiful patriot hero. Yeah, but then you know these guys owned a lot of copper mines in Montana, the Heinzes. Um, I don't think mm-hmm. that's like John Kerry's family Hines. who moved into like Heinz Kerry. I don't think they're because has an e at the end of it, and I don't know if it's Heinz mm-hmm. ketchup either because it has the e. But uh, right, going to look it seems into that. Like no, but but, but I guess uh, maybe not because they got ruined. So they were basically making so much money off murdering people with the Ice Trust. That they bought up a bunch of coastwise steamship lines, consolidated them, them into one corporation, watered the stock. They brought in the Hineses, who owned the copper mines in Montana. And uh, then they made a coalition with a guy named Thomas, who controlled some New York banks. But into that, Uh, They made such noise in the financial world and dashed around with prodigious belief in their invincibility. They were vaunted as great financiers, doubtless inflated by their own success. They esteemed themselves so and judged themselves fully able to cope with the great magnates. In the meantime, the Morgan and Rockefeller group was carefully observing their operations and awaiting the ripe time when they could be crushed out at one blow. The standard oil company wanted those copper mines and the steamship company organized by morse was considered a competitive menace to railroad lines controlled by the morgan and rockefeller interests so good old uh, fightin bob la follette senator bob la follette uh gave a speech in the senate uh talking a lot of shit about all these people that myers says was accurate suddenly in the first days of october somebody to use a wall street phrase began to quote smash united copper on the curb the stock broke badly standard oil was getting underway doubtless never suspecting the source Heinz through his brother a member of the stock exchange and through brokers bought and bought until United Copper went out of sight carrying down Heinz's brother one firm of his brokers and involving the Morris Heinz banks in the crash up to this point the panic had been well in hand but with the revelations following hard upon clearinghouse investigations it slipped its bridle and the situation assumed a serious aspect But not for one moment did Morgan or Standard Oil miss the opportunity offered. Morse and Hines were forced out. They were compelled to reorganize their directorships and substitute semi-dependent Standard Oil men as their successors. They were forced to sell their stocks for what they could get. Morgan attacked Morse's consolidated steamship company, Stocks and Bonds, and Morse was ultimately forced to surrender his steamship company, Combine, which he did. They went after the Knickerbocker Trust Company, Charles T. Barney, president, a close ally of Morse's, uh, then they started a run on the n- Knickerbocker. Morgan was a PO- Yeah, it was charged in New York that the interest deliberately started a run on the Knickerbocker Morgan was appealed to for aid Morgan, whose plaudits have been sounded right here in this chamber, was in a position to follow carefully every step and phase of this proceeding. In the first place, Morgan gave out, as reported in Wall Street, that the Knickerbocker would be supported if it met the demands of the depositors who had started a run upon it. There was nothing in subsequent events to indicate that there was any sincerity in that promise, but an analysis of every step is convincing to the contrary. Support was not given, it was withheld. After the company, relying on that pledge, had paid out millions, it was forced to close its doors, and Barney went to a suicide's grave. Oh, there we go again. (laughs) <laughs> like Damn. betraying somebody and they kill themselves
3: constant suicides yep. yeah so
2: barney was likewise a director in the trust company of america a comparatively new institution with a few system directors giving the great groups of semi i remember
3: we were like trying to figure out like how often that actually happened it seems like it happened a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> based on this book like before the great, great depression the time.
2: usually as yeah. a fact of like specifically getting screwed out of something like um yeah so yeah, the raid of Heinz Morris Barney et al and the latter's directorate connections with the Trust Company of America caused public suspicion to fall upon it. A strong run was started. This was not on the program, but as the Vanderbilt allies of Standard Oil were represented on the directorate of the Trust Company of America, Standard Oil was bound to offer some assistance. Though gold and banknotes were ostentatiously piled on the counters to impress depositors, and young Vanderbilt offered as an exhibit of resources and placed at the teller's window, the excited deposit that's funny, they put a Vanderbilt at the teller window <laughs> to be like,
4: Look, yeah. like,
2: the excited depositors persisted in demanding their money. In a day, as it were, the Moore's High the Morse Heinz-Thomas group were smashed into nothingness and its property seized. If the experience of those venturesome little magnates had ended there, they would have had cause to rejoice over their good fortune, but their route had to be made complete. The federal authorities began to take a sudden interest in their operations. Huh, interesting. Where previously the government's prosecuting officials had been wholly unaware that Morris, Hines and Thomas had been committing fraud in their financial methods, they now spied out the fullest evidences. From certain quarters, proofs were offered of violations of the law by the fallen trio. The DA's office in New York became alive with energy. It caused grand jurors to investigate and showed striking official zeal in the prosecution. Hines was indicted and Morse brought to trial, convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison, a verdict from which he appealed. The U.S. Circuit uh, Circuit Court of Appeals uh, affirmed the verdict and Morse is now serving his term in the federal prison in Atlanta. Morse and Hines learned two valuable lessons which all aspiring little magnates might well take to heart. First, that it is extremely unwise to cross the interests of the really big magnates. And second, that those magnates can use the criminal machinery of the courts against opponents of their own class, not less than against labor leaders, labor unions and the property list in general. So, yeah, they uh, apparently also uh, that was not the only thing seized during the harvest days of the Panic of 1907. The electric apparatus factories, the Westinghouse Company had long been in the way of Standard Oil, which owned the General Electric Company. That's another thing we always forget Mm -hmm. is that the General Electric is a spinoff of Standard Oil. The Standard Standard Oil uh, exercised a financial pressure during the panic that soon drove the Westinghouse Company into an extrication from which it escaped only by becoming a Standard Oil property. And in the conferences held by the Wall Street financiers during the early days of the panic, Morgan learned that the control of the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company in the form of stock had been placed with the Trust Company of America by John W. Gates and his associates to secure loans. This was information of the highest and most momentous value. So that was actually the one company he mentioned that could compete with U.S. Steel because it had had its own supply of iron ore. In tennessee Mm -hmm. and so they were able to hold out for a while but then panic of 1907 happens and the steel trust gobbles up the tennessee coal and iron company they finally get it but they did run into an obstacle so to prevent itself from going into bankruptcy the trust company of america needed large and immediate amounts of cash which was scarce morgan and his clique had the cash The condition insisted upon by Morgan was that the company should sell him the stock of the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company that it was holding as collateral for loans. Hard-pressed, the trust company had to yield and sell the stock at the low price offered. The next move was to make the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company a part of the steel trust. But there was an obstacle. (laughs) The federal antitrust law prohibited such combinations. How could this situation be overcome? President Roosevelt was incessantly and gustily threatening the great magnates with the enforcement of this law. But apparently, Morgan knew Roosevelt much better than the country knew him. He undoubtedly reckoned that Roosevelt's talk was mere words, and that Roosevelt would prove his subservience anew Mm. in acts.
3: Again, nothing new under the sun. Uh, sun. Yeah, Um, I feel like that's the case with a lot of the uh, the woke capital of today as well. Uh, You know, maybe I'm wrong. They can huff and puff all they want. I would like to be wrong in in a lot of cases, but I, I, you know, I'm not convinced.
2: I find it hard to believe they do have their ways of leverage but okay so the story of this uh, the story was current that morgan on arriving at the white house informed roosevelt that unless the merger of the two steel companies was allowed by the government the trust company of america would go down in failure causing a train of other bankruptcies and the panic would be manifold intensified whatever were the reasons for roosevelt's submission he gave his consent at that very time the courts were enforcing the antitrust law with a construction that no one had dreamed of when the law was passed The eminent judges that discovered that labor unions were trusts and (laughs) issued writs against them on the ground that they were conspiracies in defiance of that law. Roosevelt was bitterly denounced. His action, however, mattered little so far as the merging of the two corporations was concerned. Had not the steel trust obtained control at that particular time, it would have inevitably done so at some other time and by another process. So according to disclosures before the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, the Steel Trust made a profit of $67 million by forcing the Trust Company of America to sell the control of the enormously valuable plants and mines of the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company at a preposterously low price. Now, where did Morgan and his associates get the money with which to carry on the process of terrorizing the country and gathering an immense industrial and other properties? Again, the people had another of these frequently occurring vivid opportunities of seeing how thoroughly the US government was an instrument of the capitalists. In the banks, there were more than $200 million of money wrung fundamentally from the sweat of the working class in taxation. The few oligarchs controlling the great banks were allowed to use this money as though it were their private property. They declined to loan any money to anyone until their plans were ready. And when they did loan, it was at extortionate rates of interest. Even this complete transference of government funds did not satisfy them. They demanded more. The government at once responded. U, uh Secretary of the Treasury, instantly permitted the national banks to issue $30 million more in paper currency and made the mints work night and day to turn out fresh coin posing as the savior of the country morgan came forward at the auspicious time on the afternoon of october 24th 1907 and magnanimously announced his, his desire to quote relieve the tension the entire capitalist class excepting the very few magnates thus engineering the whole situation was clamoring for loans of money the loans were finally given on that afternoon the savior of the country demanded from 20% upwards for loans and exacted securities as collateral at heavy sacrifices to the borrowers. The money that he thus loaned was government money squeezed in taxation from the producers. It was a classic example of government of for and by the great capitalist. So banks got bailed out. We got sold out. Yeah. Ain't nothing new. Mm -hmm. Um, Federal Reserve got that discount window, got that money printer going brr. Yeah. You know. By the way, like up to five million workers were laid off and unemployed by June 1908. The cities were overcrowded with the homeless and unemployed. Destitution was rife. Cases of starvation of men, women and children were more frequent than the official reports dared reveal. The jails throughout the country were crowded with men who thrown out of work were adjudged vagrants and sentenced. Many of the homeless voluntarily committed some breach of the law in order to be sent to jail. There, at least, shelter and food could be obtained. Many (laughs) towns adopted the plan of deliberately driving out the unemployed. Everywhere crime increased, driven to absolute necessity, many workers stole and, of course, were dispatched to prison. The Social Ethical League of New York City reported that crime had increased 50% within six months. No. Wow. uh, uh, But it wasn't BLM that did it. time no. you know it was JPM yes Am I right? He's the um, he t-
3: yeah. He's the opposite of Batman. Uh, the, sc- the secretive billionaire who increases crime, uh, like you know. <laughs> he really ban- is the ban- opposite crime. of Batman. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. Well, he has got increased crime, so he can put on a cape and go and fight it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and of course the gov- like no level of government, uh, with destitution and starvation everywhere, uh, did anything except to club and terrorize the unemployed when they presume <laughs> to hold street meetings or plead uh, for the right to work. Uh, In the whole sphere of government, there was not a single real representative of the workers to speak or act for the workers... The government was a government elected by the votes of millions of working men, yet the working class did not have a single mouthpiece in that government. A senator such as Davis of Arkansas might rise, as he did, in the Senate in 1907 and fiercely denounce, quote, the stock gamblers and thieves of Wall Street, but he, and all like him, did not speak for the working class, about which they cared nothing save to keep it in submission. They spoke for the middle class and for that alone. This is the true story, in outline, of the career of the great, quote, savior of the country. (laughs)
1: Definitely I've been in our ships, it's about to go down, on no Titanic, Titanic, there's a lot going on in my head right now, but i managed, i manage. good heart, good soul, both been in bad hands, I could deal damage, yeah. real damage, both hands in the air as I scream out prayers, my demons show their face in the midnight air, just got a new house, gotta hide the skeletons in the closet and keep them there, really trying to forget about them, they tell me God Watching over me, I don't doubt. But I can see I'm getting tired of me sending and wilding. Don't know what to do with myself these days. Young rich nigga, I done fell in love with the pain. But all this money don't rip me of my pain. But everywhere I go, I can make it precipitate rain. Fucked up, I did. Fucked up, I am. Calm down. I can't, shit, here we go again I'm our ships, it's about to go down No Titanic, Titanic There's a lot going on in my head right now But I managed. Yeah. I manage Good heart, good soul, both been in bad hands I could deal damage, yeah. real damage Both hands in the air as I scream out prayers My demons show their face in the midnight air Set sail in a codeine bottle, I'ma drown in it Drowning Shit fills me up But whatever goes up Goes down and it Down and it At the end of the day I'm blessed Oh yes try a smile With it Smile With it Now frowning again Life goes so fast Watch it blow in the wind Can't get time back I've been begging for it Fucked up I did i fucked up I am Here we go Again it's about to go down, no Titanic, Titanic There's a lot going on in my head right now, but I managed. Yeah. Manage. Good heart, good soul, both been in bad hands I could deal damage, yeah. real damage Both hands in the air as I scream out prayer. My demons show their face in the midnight air Midnight air Midnight air midnight
2: Kind of at the end of our portion about J.P. Morgan, but there's like one more thing. <laughs>
4: uh,
2: J.P. Uh, Casabas Myers mentions a few more exploits, like in the last decade of his life, um, including him getting more into the shipping business, which uh, probably won't be surprised to hear that he's sort of a through fraud and bribery and treachery um, got New York City to spend twenty two million dollars building a bunch of modern piers in the Hudson River, uh, Mm. also known today as the Chelsea piers, and the entire cost was defrayed by the city, and the money was obtained from selling issues of city bonds, and then those piers were leased to three steamship companies, one of which is the International Mercantile Marine Company, organized by J. P. Morgan, and then the uh, Compagnie Générale Transatlantique, which I guess is the Cunard Line. Oh, sorry, the Cunard Line and the Compagnie Générale Transatlantique. Mm-hmm. Uh, these companies secure from Tammany administration in 1904 a lease of such a scandalous character that the city does not get enough revenue to pay even the interest on the bonds issued for the piers. So this international mercantile company um, is kind of interesting and it might be best known for uh, a pretty big incident that happens in 1912. Call it right. Uh, the, uh,
3: okay. I see. We're going right into the. the I okay, think so. Yeah, right? right. I yes. mean, why not? I think okay. we, we have
2: to bring it up before we move on. In 1912, the year before JP Morgan died, there was a great international tragedy when the international ship Titanic sunk mm-hmm. in the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, we've all seen the movie. We all know it was very yes. tragic. Mm-hmm. Jack sacrificed himself for Rose, um, yeah. et cetera. They were both rich and poor on this boat. And, you know, I think a lot of people do look at it as almost like this a kind of like a cosmic karmic event that like represented all of the class tensions and like inequalities and the hubris of the times you know this is mm-hmm. the greatest ship ever and you know it was the most luxurious ship ever and all right. and interestingly a lot of people from the families that we've talked about so far uh, in this volume were on the titanic and died there was yes. an aster and a guggenheim in mean, some right. we haven't
3: talked about yet. We're going to talk about Elkins probably a bit or like touch on him. Yes. Uh, yeah. And famously, Harry Elkins Widener, who the, uh-huh. Harry there's like a myth at, at Harvard that there's like, a, I guess, a mandatory swimming test for undergrads. And like uh, in order to graduate from Harvard, you have to pass a swimming test. And yeah, this is not the reason as far as I know. But the myth of the reason is that the widow of Harry Elkins Widener's father Gordon Widener, something like that. What was his name? Uh, um, like, William.
2: Uh, or no, Peter. Uh, Peter Errol Brown Widener.
3: Is that his father? I thought it was something with. Or maybe Peter. it was anyway. his grandfather. Oh, George Dunton Widener. Yeah, sorry, father. George yeah. Dunton
2: Wiser was, was mm-hmm. his father who also died on the Titanic. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the father so and son, the wife and the maid, uh, survived. Yes, but,
3: and his widow. The myth is that his widow stipulated the swimming test because he died in the Titanic, but that's not really why. But You know, he famously did die and he was like a big heir to the Elkins fortune. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Simon Guggenheim was the one on there. Right. And he's even in the movie. Am I right?
2: I forget, actually, because I haven't seen the movie in years and I wasn't as like, like plutocrat pilled, I think, the last time I saw it. So if there are any like shout outs to like various people. Yeah, um, there
3: is a uh, shout out to him. Maybe it was Benjamin Guggenheim. I don't think it was Simon Guggenheim. Uh, it might have
2: it, been Benjamin Guggenheim. Yeah. Yeah, one of and them. The, the Guggenheim like, it's is It's actually like
3: kind of a hagiographic portrayal of him where it's like, uh, you know, uh, as the ship's going down, they're like, Mr. Guggenheim, you know... Uh, blah 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 like we have all this ready for you and it's like no we are. and he like dressed up in his finest suit and he's like we're dressed in our best and we're prepared to go down like gentlemen it's like <laughs> you know an alleged well some of them it's. were like
2: that but i think there was one of them uh one of the owners of like the shipping company snuck onto a lifeboat and then had to like basically like deal with the shame like the rest of his life because <laughs> he wasn't supposed yes. to leave i forget what it is i think it was one of the british guys but anyways so I mean, it does get a brief mention. I think maybe it's in the Hereditary American Fortunes, Myers notes that a lot of these, you know, very uh, wealthy individuals that perished on the Titanic and yeah. including like one of the, I think he, when he's talking about the, the absurd inheritances and how one of the, the Astor babies who was on, I believe it was either he was a baby. No, I think his, his mother was pregnant with him like when they were on the Titanic and she survived and her husband, the aster died and the baby was born and he was called the Titanic baby. And he, he, by the time he was born, he inherited like a bazillion dollars and stuff right? and and all this shit. So, uh, but you know, nonetheless, it was a lot of big people. And actually Myers does note on 309 that JP Morgan and company had formed a syndicate with the Guggenheims in 1906. So they were, you know, basically in cahoots with one another, and apparently, there were a few passengers that were supposed to be on the Titanic that uh, just didn't end up making it, including J.P. Morgan himself.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And I found, this is kind of a late entry, but I was just poking around last night about the Titanic because there has always been, I, I'm, I'm vaguely aware of a conspiracy theory that somehow, is very popular with like Ron Paul libertarian types, that somehow... J.P. Morgan had the Titanic sunk on purpose to murder all of his rival plutocrats who did not want, who opposed the creation of the Federal Reserve.
3: No. And,
2: uh, you know, Thay. I know no, And so, okay, that's a spicy claim. But I, I kind of just like poked around last night and tried to see like, oh, is there anything to that? And I found this like amazing, like 1990s, like British documentary. And the <laughs> title of it is just like, like how JP Morgan like engineered the collapse of like the Titanic to like murder his rival. That's not what the name of the documentary is, but it was post posted by some like red pill, like Trump account. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's like, it's like a partially dramatized like British documentary. I'm not sure if it was ever on TV or anything, but the general thrust of it is a little bit fascinating. And there's like, there's multiple tiers of possible conspiracy surrounding titanic and i think it was enough that i feel like we're gonna spin this off one day and i think do a whole sus titanic episode but i feel like it's worth mentioning because i feel like if gustavus Myers got his hands on some of this information he would not have done what like pretty much everybody else you know in the media does and like debunk it or like fact check it or like morgan wouldn't be that evil i think as we've laid out he might do just about anything but the the main kind of crux of like the conspiracy is that there were two mega shipliners built by like this J P Morgan backed company, uh, the Titanic and the Olympic. The Olympic launched first to great fanfare and media coverage, but then it got into an accident with a British naval vessel, like on you know a few voyages in, it got too cl- it got sucked into like its uh its wake basically when it was you know and they, it crashed into it and created a big gash. And, like, the Olympic had to limp back to port and undergo these extensive repairs. Now, what this British documentary kind of claims is that they swapped out the Titanic and the Olympic for <laughs> largely for, like, strange insurance fraud purposes because both ships were backed by, like, multi-million dollar insurance policies. I don't know if it because of the nature of the crash with the British vessel, they were kind of unable to claim the full insurance value of the ship. But basically that ship was compromised. What this conspiracy alleges is that they they were in port at the same time, I think in Belfast, and there was a period of time where they easily could have had like a small crew go on and basically swap out the names and other identifying things and patch up the part that had been gashed open and get it in like good enough shape to go and then sail it as the titanic and basically blah blah blah. while the other ship like the the real titanic was pretending to sail around as the repaired olympic and then there's more tiers the conspiracy because some people insinuate that jp morgan that maybe this is a total accident this is like the result of of reckless negligence which we've seen you know from cornelius Vanderbilt all down like built like sending shitty ships out to sea and the fact that they sent out a compromised vessel under the guise of being this perfect mega ship that could never sink that when they did hit an an iceberg it just totally fucking crumpled and like everyone died or some people say jp morgan kind of wanted it to hit an iceberg. But maybe he didn't want it to sink like maybe because there was a ship nearby and perhaps they hit they hit the iceberg in the wrong location or something like that. Something went wrong. And instead of having a ship there that was like ready to like take on the survivors and stuff like that, because then basically if if the if the Titanic hit an iceberg, they could claim like the full insurance payout from it. Because it wasn't a previously damaged ship, it was worth more. So they were going to like scam the insurance thing that way, and then it all went wrong. Or the top tier. So was tier.
3: there ever a real Titanic?
2: Yeah, no, no. It is. I mean, exact. There was like the real Titanic. Then where is it now? It it was the olympic. It, it it is the ship that they called the Olympic, like that still existed as the Olympic. They swapped them.
3: Okay, so well, it wasn't that. Then it wasn't a swap. It was like
2: well. You know what I mean? Like uh, they 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 retrofitted it to imposter. look like the other ship,
3: and they called it the Titanic. They called they, but they switched there the wasn't names. Ever a real Titanic, right? Okay, yeah.
2: Even though they're they're basically identical, so it's not like oh the Titanic isn't real. Like the the real ta- they're both almost identical ships. They're built around the same time, and so essentially they swap the names out. It's like you know flag of convenience. Like they swap the the names out, and then. The one that was actually—it should have been a brand spanking new ship. It was a maiden voyage, right? The Titanic, but it actually was a ship that had been damaged previously when a naval vessel crashed into it. Should have been a new ship. Yeah, but you know, then if you look at other amounts of evidence, like there's a lot of sketchiness around like the inquiry into the Titanic. And J.P. Morgan, like I said, was supposed to go on it, but then he suddenly fell ill, like right before, and canceled his voyage, even though he was going to be traveling in like the greatest like presidential. Sweet. It, it, it would seem like mm. something. Given that he sort of owned this company, that he wouldn't want to miss out on the maiden voyage of this great Titanic. But uh, he just had a little, he had a little tummy ache, a little cold, and he decided not to go. Even though, like two days afterwards, I think a journalist found him at a resort town in England, hanging out with his mistress, like having fun and like not looking sick at all. And he had a bunch of really expensive bronze statues that he was planning on importing on the Titanic from, you know, the UK to New York. And at the last minute, he pulled all the valuable bronze statues off. And there was even almost like a kind of like 9-11 type rumbling that numbers of people got like telegrams like the day before telling them like not to go. So like some people didn't Mm -hmm. show up to sail on the voyage. So it's almost like maybe he knew something was going to happen. And then when you add to that, the fact that there were definitely not enough uh lifeboats on board to like save everybody if the ship did sink and because we know about we everybody's aware of like the norms of the time women and children first right so all of these men including a guggenheim an Astor, some like wealthy british people potential rivals of pierpont uh would have to do the right thing and stay with the ship as it goes down and then if they perp and also there's like weird behavior of the crew that might have been bribed or something where like they didn't do anything for 45 minutes they just pretended that like nothing was happening and like they didn't send up a flare like there were boats nearby that could have come to them faster or they even could have like gone full speed ahead to like the nearest boat and like reached it before like sinking but like they didn't do any of that so it was like they almost like wanted to fucking sink and have it be a disaster. It was like very. There's a lot of Dracularity. Uh, let's just say around um, Titanic.
3: Yeah, I'd be interested to do. I mean, there's certainly Dracularity. I Man, it's a ship between the and you know the the sort of mysterious sinking of a ship at sea, like the high Gothic romantic uh, sort of uh, mystery of the Titanic and everything. Definitely, I can. See the dracularity, like between the U.S. and uh, sorry, between London and, and the U.S. and everything, and the the sense of like the vulnerability of the the high society people. Although I guess Dracula's victims are mainly middle class, but you know they're still well, you know they're very bourgeois. Yeah, they're There's pretty a sense bougie. Vulnerability there, but yeah. but I mean, I guess maybe some more than others. But anyway, yeah, I mean I'm looking at this debunker article that you sent me on Popular Mechanics. Yeah. Well, they do definitely, you know, it doesn't make me trust them that they sort of hold up. Uh, they sort of repeat the uh, canard of Morgan uh, solving the banking crisis of nineteen oh seven almost single handedly. Ah, but sign. yeah, it's not a good sign. But they do seem, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's I am not in a position to evaluate really their evidence, but it's not like super persuasive, like the differences they're pointing at between the Olympic and the Titanic.
2: I would say that because I was reading that article while watching this British documentary. And I feel like if you watch the British documentary, they kind of counter debunk a lot of things that like people say (laughs) that like that couldn't be true. And they also throw out evidence that like, you know, one of those underwater drone things that started going down there in the 90s, like photographing it, like there was a bulkhead repair panel on like the part of the ship that would have been like slashed on the Olympic and like the name Titanic had been bolted on in like huge letters but like two of the letters like fell and in their place was like an M and a P. <laughs> no. Is that true? I don't know. I don't know. I have to check. I have to double check. I'm not um, totally sure. But like it would be interesting. Yeah, you know these
3: British documentaries can be but It had a very like you know, BBC uh, style
2: they're but they're it was kind of wacky. For their I not journalistic standards. Well, no. I mean uh, I mean neither I, I mean, is American it, journalism. It's though. um it's definitely, I don't know. Also, like the I, the aspect of the Federal Reserve, I feel like Gustavus Myers doesn't get like too deep into any kind of machinations around the create, which is kind of weird. Like, I mean, I guess in this book it's not because the Federal Reserve wasn't built yet. But in Hereditary American Fortunes, he doesn't really kind of talk too much about it. So, I don't know. I I need to get more information on the kind of. Uh, Because wasn't it called like the creature from like Jekyll Island or something where there was like this wealthy island off the coast of Georgia where all these plutocrats met and like hammered out that like, okay we're going to do the Federal Reserve, you know, kind of thing.
3: I feel like it's bound up kind of with the income tax thing. Like, didn't we talk about this last time where it's like, did you know there was no income yeah, exactly. tax until the Fed? Well, yeah, it's, uh, most of the time like, I've heard about it, it's been yeah. from
2: libertarians. Even the Titanic thing is like J.P. Morgan, the globalist, yeah. like killed every, every based billionaire <laughs> on the Titanic to, like, create the Federal every Reserve. Every based
3: billionaire. Yeah. I mean, I definitely could see J.P. Morgan or any one of these people, like, passing off. I mean, I guess whether you believe the Olympic conspiracy or the Titanic, like, st- official history It is true that, like, an inadequate ship was passed off as being, like, this unsinkable Titanic. Yeah.
2: No, that's true. The people do say that, that that it was, yeah. un, they said it was unsinkable, but then it sunk. So clearly they were exaggerating yeah. how unsinkable it was. So I, I don't know for sure, but... I mean, it
3: reminds me of like Commodore Vanderbilt, yeah. uh, like, you know, and the rickety ships he gave exactly. to the This really European ain't soldiers. nothing new. Like uh, they've,
2: they've all done it. And also the, yeah. it's worth noting that that is one of the few enterprises that Morgan controlled or invested in that failed the like international maritime shipping company largely because of the loss of the Titanic, you know? So I I mean to say that he simply did it to recoup a few extra million dollars on an insurance policy doesn't seem like it quite explains it. But if he,
3: yeah, that was one of the few convincing things in the popular mechanics article was that like he didn't disguise the insurance company at all. It was all under the same, name yeah
2: i don't know but at the same time if you're gonna murder a bunch of your wealthy rivals, (laughs) then maybe it is worth like like tanking your own shipping company like maybe it is for you know your greater benefit to do this even if you have to take an l kind of like just have you have to let like the world trade centers get blown up um you know and it seems like an l
3: did you uh you know we should do a yeah, Titanic episode? But did you ever hear the the cursed mummy theory of the Titanic? Like they
2: were bringing back a cursed mummy from Egypt, and it like caused the ship to sink. <laughs> yes, <laughs> basically. Dope. All right. Yeah, we will return to that one day. Um, but we should okay, probably move right. on from J.P. Morgan okay. to uh, there, there's a couple brief like chapters at the end of this uh, volume three uh, that are kind of interesting. For the the first one, chapter thirteen is about the Elkins fortune. And that's Stephen B. Elkins, right? Not to be confused mm-hmm. with the Elkins-Widener kind of clan from Philadelphia. I don't know if they're distantly yes. related or not. He doesn't note any connection. So not not the ones that died on the Titanic. But this guy had a very interesting...
3: They're not the same Elkins?
2: No, because that were. was um, oh, well. yeah. Harry Elkins. I mean, I, I honestly, oh, yeah. they could be related mm-hmm. originally, but I don't exactly know. The, like maybe a few generations back because like Stephen b elkin's trajectory really kind of spans a lot of different like regions and industries and types of like corruption across america he kind of dipped his you know fingers in a lot of different pies like he he wasn't one of like the super super oligarchs in terms of how much wealth but he became one of the most powerful politicians in the country one of the leaders of the u.s senate And I guess uh, Myers says basically like rules the state of West Virginia as not just his province, uh, but to a great extent, his personal property. He owns or controls many of its mountains and its coal mines and much of its other natural resources. Some of its railroads are his and also its traction companies. The West Virginia Central Railroad uh, sold a few years ago to the Goulds for 18 million was controlled by him. This was but one of his railroads. In the same state, he owns banks and security companies, construction corporations, coke plants, waterworks, and other diversified properties. And he also has large mining uh, land and other interests in the West. He is the great lord of wealth whose word is law in West Virginia. So, yeah. Yeah. And the Mm -hmm. funny thing about him is that he says whether the state goes Democratic or Republican matters little, its control is a strictly family affair. While he is the Republican ruler, his father-in-law, Henry G. Davis, reputed to possess a fortune of at least 30 million, has long been the Democratic boss. Whichever of these political parties has been in power, this family has been on the winning side. That's pretty funny. So uh, actually, I think actually Davis was even chosen as maybe as William Jennings Bryan's uh, running mate for vice president. But as huh. you can see, they control both parties. <laughs> and that's hilarious that you have like a father-in-law mm-hmm. and like a son who are Republicans and Democrats, but just are totally cool with each other. But only 20 years prior, he was considered an interloper. You know, so where did this guy come from? Mm-hmm. Oh, it says his daughter is rumored to marry the Duke of the Abruzzi, a member of the royal reigning family of Italy. There we go again. Wow. Yep. <laughs> he that. says these royal families, as is well known, are extraordinarily solicitous of the preservation of caste, quote, noble blood, hallowed by ancient ancestry is of all things demanded as a passport of admittance into the sacred circle (laughs) and for intimate admission and for intimate admission, nothing less than similar quote, Royal blood usually suffices. If royalty examines ancestry with such scrupulous care, why should it not critically examine the origin of the wealth to which it attaches itself? Would royalty think of marrying without having a genealogy duly made out and verified? Yikes. If it is true that the Elkins' fortune is to enrich the royal family of Italy, surely its history likewise ought to be known and treasured in the royal archives. So this is a little more of a Daniel Plainview type character. He inherited no wealth. He is wholly, quote, the architect of his own fortune. But what were the species and style of his architecture? According to the routine biographies ordinarily paid for at advertising rates, his was the memorable career of a poor boy rising to great wealth by Hard work, application, and superior ability. But official documents have a very different tale to tell. And while they do not explain how Elkins obtained all of his millions, they give enough vivid details of the methods by which he first became a millionaire. So this is kind of what this guy really did have, like a Forrest Gump, like plutocratic life story. As a young man, Elkins was repeatedly accused of being one of Quantrell's band of marauders during the Civil War, as to which charge, no actual proof can be found in the records. I don't know. Have you ever heard of Quantrell's band?
3: Uh, no, I have not heard of Quantrell's band of marauders. Quantrell's raiders,
2: War. let's just see, were, were the best known of the pro-Confederate partisan guerrillas, also known as bushwhackers, who fought in the Civil War. Their leader was William Contrell. Oh, and they included Jesse James and his brother Frank. That's where I've heard them from. They were part of these wow. marauders uh, with the James brothers.
3: They committed a lot of massacres. So
2: they basically sense. did like Operation Phoenix oh. type like verve warfare um, mm-hmm. in Missouri and Kansas. Yeah, so they led an attack on the town of Lawrence, Kansas, in 1863, killing more than 180 civilians, supposedly in retaliation for the casualties caused when the women's jail collapsed. I guess they they had jailed some of the young women in the Quantrill group, and then the jail like collapsed and killed some of them. I don't know. So, mm. the Confederate government, which had granted Quantrill a field commission under the Partisan Ranger Act, was outraged and withdrew support for such irregular forces. By 1864, Quantrill had lost control of the group, which split up into small bands. Some, including Quantrill, were killed in various engagements. Others lived on to hold reunions many years later, when the name Quantrill's Raiders began to be used. The James brothers formed their own gang and conducted robberies for years as a continuing insurgency in the region. Wow. So this guy allegedly was maybe one of those Phoenix program Confederate marauders during the Civil War. Oh, for the record, Uh this is
3: actually kind of interesting. Uh, I looked up like the Elkins family relation. And uh, according to the New England Society of Pennsylvania, on the occasion of William Lucan Elkins death, who was, you know, a prominent member of the Mm -hmm. other Elkins family. So William Lucan Elkins died in uh, November 7th. He was born in West Virginia in 1832, became Puritan stock. His father was a native of the city, although the family is a Virginia one. The first of the Elkins to appear in Philadelphia was William L. Elkins' grandfather, William Elkins, who died in the city on July 29, 1798. Uh, He was a Virginian, born 1767. The founder of the Elkins family in Virginia, of which William L. Elkins was a descendant from one branch and United States Senator Stephen B. Elkins from the other was Ralph Elkins, who in 1661 received from Governor Morrison a patent of land and settled on an estate between the Potomac and the Rappahannock Rivers. No fucking way. So, so okay, they're from they're the same like, Puritan
2: clan that got, like, a land grant in, like, colonial times?
3: Yes. <sighs> uh, way, like, really, really early on in, like,
2: 1661. I guess it, Gustavus Myers was, you know, when he's talking about royal blood and noble blood, how it yeah yeah by american standards he sure did so that that's an interesting thing you see too of like these different branches like the phelpses and like the fishes and like all these other people like really branching off it's it's unclear like how closely they they stay socially in touch with each other when when they're like third cousins but given that myers notes how often they would marry like their third cousins i would assume that they did stay kind of interconnected with each other right even as they spread out to different cities and regions Mm -hmm. in the country so yeah so actually that's kind of what elkins did after the civil war he went to new mexico there he studied spanish and became a member of the territorial legislature his enemies both partisan and personal brought the accusation against him that he was the originator and ringleader of the immense land frauds current in new mexico this particular charge was both unjust and false Long before Elkins drifted into the Southwest, the land frauds were notorious. What he and others did after the Civil War is nothing more than a continuation of what had been going on for many years. It is characteristic of the way in which American history has been written that not a line can be found of the gigantic frauds by which ten of, tens of millions of acres of land were stolen in the Southwest and in the Pacific States after the Mexican War, although court records and other official documents relate enough details to make an extended work. By themselves. So, yeah, he talked about that in Volume 2. And this is interesting. Under the Mexican colonization laws, no individual was entitled to or could claim more than 48,000 acres. That's still a lot, but like they got a lot more. Uh, the Mexican authority in California was overthrown by American forces in 1846 and elsewhere about the same time. When it was evident that the Mexican power was about to pass away, Pio Pico, the a- Mexican acting governor of California at once began to issue fraudulent grants of land, which the court records indicate were given for bribes. Most were presented in May 1846. Numerous other land grants alleged to have been given by him at the same time were forgeries. The Supreme Court of the United States found some of them so when the government later contested their validity. Yeah. So Pio Pico, a namesake of uh, Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles, uh, gave out all that land. That had tons of like mineral resources and grazing land, mining shit. We've all gone over this before. So yeah, he he goes on to talk about, yeah, he he just, he can't miss an opportunity to like hammer home how all this land was corruptly stolen in the first place. Yeah, Yeah. he goes and then, oh yeah, 326 was interesting because he did steal a lot of land. Okay, so he becomes a principal owner of the Maxwell Land Grant and Railroad Company um, in 1871, but the but the claimants like wouldn't comply with the law because the foremost U.S. territorial officials in New Mexico were in collusion with them. Yeah, so no taxes were paid yeah, basically on any uh, of this land.
3: And the Supreme Court ruled on it eventually, right? Uh, but of course they ruled yeah, in favor of, course. of the settlers. Yeah, the big land grabbers. Uh, um,
2: and so Elkins, yeah. by this point, had long been a powerful Republican politician in New Mexico. During President Grant's administration, he was the United States district attorney in that territory. At that time, the peonage system of slavery was widespread in New Mexico, as it still is in Mexico. The laborer who fell in debt to his employer could not quit employment until the indebtedness was first discharged. This resulted <laughs> in the workers' practical slavery. Under the U.S. laws, the government paid a fee of $25 for each conviction of persons charged with violating the peonage statutes of the U.S. Elkins, it was said, procured the indictment of thousands of Mexican violators of this law, convicted them, or compromised the cases, and thus was enabled to pocket the fee of $25 in each case. He became reasonably rich by this process. He was then elected a delegate to Congress from New Mexico, and it was during this time he got hold of the Maxwell Land Grant and pushed it in Congress. So yeah, he just like pocketed all these fines, like <laughs> very cool, and literally got rich doing it. He got his brother to do yeah. uh, the land survey that would like obviously kind of rule in his favor for I what is this one point seven million acres is what they claimed, compared to what was it forty eight thousand that the Mexican government allowed people to have. They mortgaged the grant meanwhile to a syndicate of Holland capitalists. For the sum of seven hundred thousand pounds, but then they, but they ripped off. <laughs> they, they love to <laughs> they defraud do. Dutch people. Or the like Dutch like are way too trusting with these yeah, motherfuckers. Like they come, they get took yeah. every single time. They just get too spoiled. Yes. So yeah, he. I guess he. Then he started going for land <laughs> in Colorado, all kinds of like really complicated, just basically land stealing. And the the end result is that he yes. ended up being like the ultimate tycoon of New Mexico.
3: Yeah. The Supreme Court basically, yeah, their ruling was crazy. And uh in April uh 1887 it held that the Act of June 21st, 1860 was virtually a new grant that had confirmed the grant to the full extent of one million seven hundred and fourteen thousand six seven hundred and sixty four point ninety four acres. For the Maxwell Grant holders there's like a little summary of the affidavit the deponent further deposes and says that S.B. Elkins was the last president of the Maxwell Land Grant and Railway Company which was bankrupt at the time of his resignation in 1875 That After 1875, the said S.B. Elkins had no connection with the said company as officer or counsel and took no part in the company's affairs, and he was nevertheless interested as an outsider and speculator in having the land required by law to be treated as public land, again treated and surveyed as the alleged uh, Beaubien and Miranda or Maxwell Grant, and made a trip to Europe in the latter part of 1875 to 76 with a scheme in view for the reorganization of the Maxwell Land Grant Company. That T.B. Catron of New Mexico, who was interested in Elkins, uh, interested with Elkins in having the land required by law to be treated as public land, again treated and surveyed as the alleged Maxwell Grant became on July 19th, 1877, by an unlawful and fraudulent tax title deed, an alleged owner of nearly two million acres of public land as the so-called BoBien and Miranda or Maxwell Grant. That in order to profit by the unlawful tax title deed to public land as the alleged Maxwell Grant, it became necessary to defeat the enforcement of the final and valid order of the Department of the Interior on January 28, 1874, requiring the lands claimed by the Maxwell Grant claimant to be treated as public land by prosecuting anew the adjudicated Maxwell Grant claim against the United States as survey and patent. That the parties conspiring to prosecute said adjudicated claim against the United States, sorry, adjudicated, uh, claim against the United States in violation of Section 5489, sorry, 98, 5498, switching numbers again, of the revised statutes were the Honorable S.B. Elkins, then delegate to Congress from New Mexico, Honorable T.B. Catron, the United States Attorney for New Mexico, Honorable J.A. Williamson, then Commissioner of the General Land Office, that the object of said conspiracy was accomplished. The enforcement of the valid order of January 28, 1874, and the Act of Congress of June 24, 1860, was defeated. Homestead and preemption settlers were deprived of their private invested rights without due process of law, and the United States deprived of its surveyed public lands. The affidavit went on to say that the refusal of the officials to enforce the act of Congress is in the interest of the aforesaid conspiracy, that by such wrongful refusal, said secretary and commissioner are aiding and abetting, by trick and fraud, the said conspiracy. Uh, The House Committee on Private Land Claims, whom the petition of the settlers was referred, found that the statements regarding the New Mexican portion of the grant were true. As to the 400,000 acres in Colorado, the committee reported, you know, no application by the Maxwell Land Grant Railway Company has been made to the Commissioner of the General Land Office for the Survey of Public Land in Colorado in 1877 and as a portion of the alleged Maxwell grant. But a party is it who is in no wise connection with the company or acting in any capacity on behalf of the country, company, Honorable S.B. Elkins, did ask for a survey to be approved. That would include public lands in Colorado's belonging to the Maxwell grant. This was after the survey that the whole uh, of the million. 1 million, you know, blah, 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 all those numbers, acres were, yeah, 700 so-and-so acres were mortgaged to the Dutch capitalists for $700,000. This land in Colorado, the committee stated, was unlawfully appropriated. The committee concluded, and it is the opinion of your committee that the lands included within the a portion of the alleged Maxwell grant were required by Act of June 21st, 1860, to be treated as public land and was not a portion of the original Bobian and Miranda grant.
2: Yep. But Congress and took Supreme no action. The I made a decision Pens. that allowed the appropriators yeah. or their assignees of the 1.7 million acres uh, to retain the possession, which thereafter was undisputed. Yeah, I guess the okay. the Surveyor General of New Mexico, George Julian, in President Cleveland's administration, visited uh, Elkins' territory. And I guess in 1892, the Hendricks Club in Minneapolis, he said... Uh, Elkin's early transactions in New Mexico amply prepared him for the brilliant ventures in real estate through which he became rich. His dealings were mainly in Spanish grants, which he bought for a very small price from their Mexican claimants or the grantees. The boundaries of these grants were vague and uncertain and their definite settlement had to be determined by the surveyor general of Did the territory to subject to the final action of Congress. Elkins became a member of the land ring of the territory, and largely through his influence, the survey of these grants was made to contain hundreds of thousands of acres that did not belong to them. He thus became a great landholder, for through the manipulation of of committees in Congress, grants thus legally surveyed were confirmed with their fictitious boundaries. But he didn't just stop there. Like, meanwhile, though, he was busy. He actually got uh, nominated to be the Secretary of War in the 1880s. I think, under um, President Harrison, and he was the chairman of the Republican National Committee. Then he married into political royalty because he married the daughter of U.S. Senator Henry G. Davis, the millionaire railroad and coal mine owner in West Virginia. So then he moved there with the millions gathered in the Southwest. And with the help of his father-in-law's many millions, he became a great magnate in West Virginia, getting control of one property after another. He, Kerenz and Davis built several West Virginia railroads and obtained control of coal, coke, oil, and lumber properties. They also financed the construction of railroads in California, Nevada, and Utah. Elkins built a splendid castle-like palace in the town bearing his name. On a mountainside, it commands a view of peaks and valleys for 35 miles. So, you know, he basically became one of the most adroit and useful law drafters uh, for the plutocracy. hmm <laughs> Uh, One of his notable acts was an amendment to the Interstate Commerce Act expunging the clause providing imprisonment for violation of the anti-rebating law and giving complete immunity to magnates who testify in such proceedings brought against them. So that's the one we mentioned earlier that Teddy Roosevelt signed that said basically you can't go to prison if you break antitrust laws. So, yeah. So this is also, yeah, how they they infest the political system directly and just get like monopolistic control. It, it's also interesting that like then you would have Robert Byrd, um, confirmed member of the Klan, yeah. uh Hillary Clinton's hero. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Who, Her hero <laughs> is, who like became that guy of West Virginia in the 20th century. For the Democrats, where he was like the pork king of, and the, what's his name? How Rogers from Kentucky, mm-hmm. that Terrence and right, Tom were telling yeah. us about. How, you know, he is basically like the kingmaker of like all kinds of politics and business, basically, in his state. And rules it kind of like a fief, to, Even though he's not one of the big dogs, like he rules it like a principality. So that's Elkins. Do we um, want to
3: talk about Hale or do we want to like... Just go to
2: her. Uh, let, me, let me see if there's anything uh, really... I mean, we could just briefly mention Hill, who's the last person, James J. Hill, uh, who was uh, derisively slurred as the Jay Gould of the Northwest, hmm. and he became a, a kind of a, a railroad plutocrat. I think he got, ended up uh, kind of tangling. We kind of glossed over that, but ended up tangling with like Harriman and Standard Oil and Morgan in the early 1900s he had an enormous fortune he played a big role in kind of uh despoiling uh sus minnesota <laughs> i right. remember why i wrote sus minnesota sus but, minnesota uh, yeah. yeah what state isn't sus i don't know i mean he he describes it interesting because, uh, uh, decar- uh, like
3: uh, elon's like grandfather was born there before going to saskatchewan and then moving to south africa because canada was coming too socialist after world war ii
2: Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> that, that could be one thing. Or even like Trump's grandfather, like going up to like the, uh, what's it called? The Yukon Territory to like run a brothel. Interesting. You know, I didn't realize happen. that he went to yeah. the last best last. Well, this is, a, this is, a, this actually ties into that because he has a section, the character of the Northwest settlement, which is interesting. Um, Meyer says the Northwest uh, in like, The 1850s, the Northwest was in its first real period of settlement, and not as conventional histories have it, was this settlement wholly made by, quote, stalwart pioneers. As a matter of fact, it was made also by land grabbers, timber thieves, gamblers, trading sharps, cutthroats, and rogues in general. The rush to get land grants, mineral deposits, railroad franchises, and every other available resource was at its height quote booms of all kinds were projected a horde of venal individuals swarmed in to preempt whatever they could and fleece anybody that they could there was a raging mania for the rapid acquisition of wealth regardless of the means used true a stream of agriculturists whose sole aim was to obtain cheap land and honestly till it poured in but this element did not give the tone to the general character of the activities the real aggressive tone was imparted by adventurers, capitalistic and otherwise practically all of these capitalists were easterners and many of them as the records show had been engaged in swindles in the east different sets of them were busily bribing congress government officials and the legislatures for land grants railroad charters franchises mineral deposits and special laws sharp merchants trading schemers and real estate hawks overran the newly settled towns and cities the stamp of money was upon every thought and plan the pervading ideal was wealth no matter how acquired all classes were infected by it Greed was in the very air, and if the many lawsuit records in the Minnesota courts can be taken as an indication, jobbery, swindling, and cheating were a very routine performance in all business transactions. Hill came into this atmosphere of venality, avarice, and corruption, a state of society judging every man by the significant question, how much is he worth? Long before his entry, this corruption had gained full headway. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, I mean, pretty colorful uh, description there of like the real West. Very uh, Eagle's Last Resort, basically, yeah, that's true. you know, um, somebody laid the mountains low while the town got high. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then he does do a little callback here to the debauching and swindling of Indians, which I uh, I think had. Yeah. Yeah. Really I had marked part. here. Um,
3: Colossal deaths of timber, seizure of mineral yeah. lands.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, the American fur company of John Jacob Astor. we we going back to volume one, mm-hmm. um, the like drugs as weapons against the yeah. uh, Native American tribes, just defrauding them. yeah, the quote here that Major Thomas Biddle, who is at a port in, Missouri, in Camp Missouri, I think in um eighteen nineteen, he wrote, the introduction of ardent spirits, whiskey, etc., is one of the unhappy consequences of this opposition among traders. So violent is the attachment of the Indians for it that he who gives most is sure to obtain furs, while, should any attempt to trade without it, he is sure of losing ground with his, his antagonist. No bargain is ever concluded without it, and the law on the subject is evaded by their saying they give, not sell it. So he was talking about actually. He, it's kind of interesting about how the government actually outlawed dealing in or supplying liquor to yeah. Native Americans right. at the government trading posts. They were, they were strictly prohibited, mm-hmm. basically, in doing that. But these companies like Astor's American Fur Company and others succeeded in undermining the trade of like the government trading posts because you know big government doesn't work. Uh, yes. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's not as efficiently swindling uh, the Native Americans as... Private art. So then, uh, basically, I think these government agencies were eventually abolished because they were so undermined by the illegal use of liquor by the American Fur Company, and they basically used the liquor to uh, as a powerful means of seducing the Indians from the government trading posts, and also they would also lie and prejudice the Indians against them by the claim the government merchandise was inferior. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So they were secretly vending whiskey they were also doing lots of propaganda and talking shit 24 seven to just convince the Indian, like imbue them with a prejudice against the government agencies for like selling bad products, even though they were the ones like really ripping them off the hardest, you know, getting them drunk and stuff. And like selling um, them
3: like heavily marked up alcohol because they had to like charge them extra because if they got caught, they would have been fine. Oh,
2: it's illegal. I got to charge a bunch of money for it. Yep. Exactly. Um, there was yeah. also a um, this a is a good oh, uh,
3: this, oh, sorry, I don't know if you're going to talk it? about this, but yeah, this is also from Biddle, uh, his communication to Con- Colonel Atkinson. He wrote further that when the traders bought furs after an Indian hunt, a keg of whiskey was considered an indispensable equipment for such an undertaking. He closed his communication with the following remarks. I had found on my arrival at the Maha nation of Indians, you know, obviously Native Americans, but like this is, you know, Gustavus Myers didn't know not to call them Indians. Most of the know. principal men drunk. Uh, the big elk, who is so much our friend and who formerly possessed unlimited power in his nation, was so drunk for two days that I could not deliver your letter to him. When I gave it, I requested an interpreter to inform him that I had been two days waiting to deliver a letter from you, but that very much to my surprise, I had found him too drunk to transact business. He appeared affected at what I said, acknowledged how unworthy it was in him to be in that situation, and admitted that he had lost much power by it. He blamed the whites for bringing liquor into the country, and said when he knew it was not to be had, he felt no inclination for it, but that when it was near and attainable, his attachment for it is irresistible. Thus is the influence of this valuable and sensible Indian lost to his tribe and the government, and thus a man who possesses some traits that do honor to human nature, debased and made a beast of
2: oh yeah big pretty elk, sad man.
3: even like this guy was like he has some traits that do honor to human nature uh, despite you know being you know an inferior native american but yeah, exactly yet he has I been mean, made a but you could by the it. worse I mean, white people than us
2: yeah, yeah like i mean he big elk knew big elk was not unaware of like the the dangers of like alcoholism and yeah. the weaponization he of it became aware
4: yeah, in a in a
2: bad way. Yeah, yes, Rustin Power, big elk, man, that mm-hmm. sucks. Yeah, um, suck. and, and also it's a, interesting like, for the
3: you know story cool. that exists, like you know, in a million different versions.
2: I'm sure there yeah. does. Uh, also, for the Larouche heads out there, um, there was another letter from the U.S. Indian agent in Green Bay who said, the fact that can be established that om- in almost every case, the persons engaged by- as traders by Mr. Astor's principal agent, Mr. Crooks, who is a British subject, were known British subjects, many of them having held commissions under the British government and headed Indians during the late war of 1812 to 15. Hmm, wow. <laughs> They're all British. What's up that? Art. Um, yeah, right? Well, we'll get to that a little bit, I think, in our next uh, section. This is also a wonderful uh, kind of side note to this. This guy, in his letter, when he after he identifies a bunch of British people, he says, A description followed of the secret traffic in whiskey carried on by Astor's agents with the explanatory statement that, quote, it was deemed illegal to accept indian testimony in other words indians could be indiscriminately debauched swindled plundered and murdered as we have seen in volume one and yet their testimony in civil or criminal suits was not considered legal wow amazing yeah uh yeah very cool so yep that's that that's how it all started. The other guy, G.C. Sibley, U.S. Indian agent at Fort Osage, wrote in 1819, the clamorous cupidity of the traders will no longer be restrained. The Indian trade must be given up to, quote, individual enterprise, to merciless men, to unprincipled pioneers of commerce of every shade and hue. If that should be done, he pointed out, an address along these lines might as well be made to the settlers, quote, your property will be sacrificed, your family's murdered, and your farm's desolated. But these men insist upon their rights, and the fur trade must be left open to them. What is the bleeding scalp of an infant compared with the rich fur of a beaver skin? Huh. So I guess that, that was something, I guess, that, I, I mean, from their perspective, like, atrocities committed by Native American tribes against settlers, were, and Meyer says this elsewhere, were largely often due to the swindling and defrauding that like the fur traders were doing with mm-hmm. alcohol. So it's like, they would go in and basically rip off everybody and cheat them and, and steal and shit they from them, them to and, and, like, and give them the alcohol and like the
3: entire fabric of their society. Yeah. Like, and then when some
2: humble homestead farmers show up like, hi, hey, hi, we're just here to settle and be humble. Far. It's like you motherfuckers. Like, it's understandable yeah. how that could happen. And then they're basically. like, "Wow,
3: these savage Comanches or whatever, you know?" Yeah, these, exactly. They're, wow, like, they're, murdering they're so everybody. brutal. Like, yeah.
2: Who's really brutal? It's all these British people roaming around. So yeah, the the whole Homestead Act was basically like a fraud and a psyop that you know. Most of this land was just not that it all deserved to be given to like random settlers and like taken from Native Americans, no. but yeah, instead I mean, of any kind of myers even says
3: to his credit, you know, he was surprisingly woke for like 1910. Yeah, you know, he even says while denouncing Aster and justly so for his extraordinarily revolting practices. United States Indian agents might well have denounced themselves for virtually defrauding the Indians in the purchase for the government of vast areas of lands owned by the Indians.
2: True. Um, they were the yeah. kind of the original scammers, weren't they?
3: They were, yeah. But the
2: Louisiana Purchase was the, like the original scam, kind of.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, who, it's like that meme, like, you know, I consent, I consent, there's somebody you forgot to ask. Like, you forgot to ask Big Elk, like, if you could sell all the land fucking west of the Mississippi River. Yeah. and its Not own report, the people.
3: House Committee on Indian Affairs thus reported in part, the second report relates to the frauds alleged to have committed upon the government and the Indians by certain subordinate agents in the public employment and persons who had contracted with the government to furnish subsistence to a number of tribes. This report presents a great amount of facts on the subject, showing that the most exorbitant prices were paid to the contractors who furnished the rations. The manner in which the contracts were made is pointed out, as well as the manner in which they were performed, and unless the statements are false, it is evident that the government was defrauded in the first instance and the Indians in the second, and that in both the agents of the government participated. The facts contained in this report are very valuable. They expose the whole machinery of fraud by which the government and Indians have been so often and so greatly wronged. The inquiry by Lieutenant Colonel Hitchcock appears to have been conducted with great intelligence and fairness... Yeah, so you know they were like kind of implicating themselves, but also like, but we also suffered, and yeah. that was even worse. Yeah,
2: kind of connected to that. Uh, getting back to Hill and his rise to the top uh, in Minnesota. Uh, eventually, he evicted all of the uh, the settlers and like the, the Dakotas, basically, mm-hmm. which was I guess part of Minnesota originally um, in the eighteen fifties, and. The Red River area of Dakota had remained a wilderness until farmers settled there and converted it into one of the richest agricultural regions in the West. The general land office took it for granted that this land did not belong to the railroad company and had given full titles to the settlers. But then in 1891, intense excitement prevailed among the farmers in the Red River Valley. An order had been issued by the Great Northern Railroad Company compelling farmers by December 15th to vacate lands belonging to the company, this order was based upon a decision of the Supreme Court declaring the company's land grant extended to the territory of Dakota, now the states of North and South Dakota. This decision gave the company some of the most fertile and valuable areas in Dakota. Unquestionably under the acts of Congress, these lands, even if the original grant had extended west of the Red River, had long since been forfeited. The Supreme Court, however, by its successive decisions, uh, negatived the explicit acts of Congress. The Great Northern Railroad thereupon began the eviction of farmers in the odd-numbered sections within the 20-mile indemnity limit of its land grant. This order of the company was like a thunderclap to the settlers. Many had resided on the land for 20 years. So they appealed to Congress. That body passed an act to allow the railroad company to select an equal area of lands in in lieu of those settled upon. This act, although apparently passed for the benefit of settlers, was precisely what the Great Northern Railroad Company was waiting for. The lands relinquished by the company were non-mineral. The act of Congress, therefore, provided that the lands in exchange that it should select elsewhere should be non-mineral. But when the exchange was made, it was discovered that the company had selected the most valuable timber lands in Idaho, Montana, and Washington, lands worth far more than the CODA lands, and that on some of these lands, rich mineral deposits underlay the timber. The commissioner of the General Grand Land Office at the time was, as we have noted previously, T.H. Carter, his record was so very satisfactory to Hill, the ruler of the politics of the Northwest, that a few years ago, the Montana legislature was allowed to send Carter to the U.S. Senate, of which he is now a distinguished member. Wow. Like, what a fucking scheme. Damn. Yeah. Just trading up, like, everywhere they go. I forget if he merged with U.S. Steel, uh, because he did own iron ore deposits in Minnesota, as well as all these railroads and dominated the politics he tricked people into selling him land that he knew iron ore was under but like didn't tell them very astute yep mm. et, cetera, et cetera. and then the northern pacific railroad i guess he got involved in great thefts of mineral lands the supreme court provisionally handed down a decision in 1890 sustaining the northern pacific railroad's claim that only such mineral lands as were known to be mineral at the date of the land grant were to be accepted from the land grant oh yeah so they hill and harriman ended up dueling in 1901 for the control of the northern pacific at the time of this writing the hill interests remain in control on the railroads i think we can start to move on i'll just read the last uh, section here the the sort of to be continued okay um he says who can blame the magnates for th- thus mocking and scourging the peoples who thus reverence them in the system, which produces and perpetuates them for not they, but the system should be held responsible. Comprehensive conclusions would be premature here. There still remains to be told the narrative of how Edward H. Harriman and above all the standard oil company for whom it is believed he so largely acted, possessed themselves of vast railroad systems. The standard oil oligarchy is indeed the mightiest railroad owner of all. Many of those railroads, the inception and development of which have been here told, are owned or controlled by it, to it has accrued the final benefits of much of that series of original frauds and thefts, some picture of which has been given in this work. But the scope of this volume does not here permit of the extended narrative of Harriman's career, with its accompaniments of enormous frauds and salutary constructive work. Nor, more so, does it allow the prolonged description of how the Standard Oil Company, starting with a few oil refineries, contrived to secure possession of so large a share of the resources of the United States, railroads and otherwise. This narrative will have to be deferred to later volumes, as also the story of the great fortunes based upon public franchises, mines, and industries.
3: Since we didn't really uh, read this part, uh, or like, you know, we uh, moved... Uh, pass this part. You know, I, I do love this, this farewell that he gives to J.P. Morgan uh, uh, oh, sure. at the very end of that chapter when he says uh, commencing his career with the sale of those condemned rifles of the Union Army during the Civil War, Morgan has prospered until he now towers as a financial colossus and as one of the actual rulers of the land. He lives in a splendid mansion on Madison Avenue, New York City, and for his private gratification built, adjoining it a fine, spacious marble art gallery filled with the costliest works of art. He professes a passion for literature, and his library is extensive. He is even a dictator of the morals of other people, as witnesses stopping of the opera Salome when it was first produced at the Metropolitan Opera House, of which he is the patron and director. Money, grandeur, prestige, power, all are his. And all the while, the prisons are crowded with petty thieves.
2: No. No, yeah. (laughs) Well, and and that's it. And, you know, very shortly after this was published, J.P. Morgan dies in
0: 1913 double my dollars double my dollars double my dollars mine try my problems double my dollars double my dollars mine over survive my dollars double my dollars mine over survive try my my dollars mine double my dollars try my over mine double my dollars dollars my dollars my problems double my dollars double my dollars mine over survive double my dollars double my Shit, my toxic trick. I cash, I need that shit like yes. brick. I'm on a trip with, with your bitch. We took your reset, you won't flip. My block deep him. like wishing was, yeah. Wishing me well won't give me bitch, rich. Yeah. I need that, C, no, D, no ting. I'm picking up the jewels, yeah. I miss. Yeah. Hold a nigga, she affectionate. Yeah. I ain't looking for a faction chick. Need the money and you naked this. In point, I don't order. i am going forehead, me, my neck a list. Sorry, John, that's my preference. We don't deal with things. That's more on the frame. By the boom, bada bang, Rather move with the range. To move for the chance. Yeah. To move with the plane. That's cool with the game, like cool again Black with the shits, like poop in the train Yeah, yeah. The cash and safe with the move and the Off of your head can' out of space in the crib is amazing. i have lost the source, cause I dude know the way I'm a balls and balls like boss with the blades going off, going off like Mike and his chase. Double my dollars, double my dollars, double my dollars. Mine drive them my problems, double my dollars, double my dollars, mine over survival, double my dollars, double my dollars, mine, over survival, drive them on, double my dollars. Sex, my problems, I, my way. Money. I got cash in the safe, so bitch, bitch move on my, my way I got cash money. in the safe, so bitch, bitch on my, my way I got cash in the safe, so bitch on my way Look what that money make a bitch do week That $40 make a bitch true She gonna let me cut like some Jinsu <laughs> Bitch my biggest stunt, bitch I just do Make money, money, make money, money uh, Stay kind honey, stay kind, honey. Ain't worried nothing, ain't worried nothing, uh uh-huh. Damn my pockets bustin', down my pockets bust, always stuff. Double my dollars, double my dollars, double my dollars, mine drive my problems, double my dollars, double my dollars, mine over survival, double my dollars, double my dollars, mine over survival, track my problems, double my dollars, mine, double my dollars, subtract my problems, over survival, mine double my dollars. Double my dollars, money my $1 $1, $1 money. my $1 Double my
4: dollars. $1 $1 $1 $1 on survival, $1 Double my dollars.